This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. But... I want you to give me power over Adam. And I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. But he has, but he has so much to gain and has such an material Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 123. I am your co-host, Dimitri. I'm Khaled. And today, we're back. Chapter 16 of the Grotto Discord Q&A series. Yes. We're throwing down some big questions today. Mm -hmm. These are from, let's see, September and October of 2021. Right? All right. Yeah, seems to be. (laughs) All right, I think we got about eight to get through. So yeah, we're we're less than a year behind, so that's good. I think we are bit. now. We're, we're slowly catching behind. up. We're slowly catching up. Yeah, <laughs> slowly catching up. Yeah, I think we'll be able to get every single one today. Um, we got so some good ones. I think there's uh, there's some science stuff. I think this is kind of a science heavy one today. I would say, mm. but also a psyop yeah. heavy one, as they usually are. Yeah, as they often are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. It's across but, the board. Yeah. I feel like, you know, the month of July, where we're recording this, I think, on June 30th, I think the month of July is going to be a month for some very serious science. Yeah. On the pod, I think, depending on when we get the episodes out. But we got some in the pipeline right now that are very scientific. Yeah, for sure. It's going to be good. But, all right, I think... We can just yeah. uh, jump into this for anybody who's wondering what this is. If you subscribe to the Subliminal Jihad Patreon, the Awar Frequency, you can get access to the SJ Grotto Discord and you can ask us questions in the questions subtab, bracketed with SJ question, so yeah. we can find it. And yeah, so we can control F because, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the questions channel also has like other discussion occurring. Many questions so, are being asked and tagging answered. them with SJ question. Yeah. Yes. And um, I think we're actually at the time in the questions queue where people are actually tagging them with SJ question for the first time. So this mm-hmm. is actually, I think even though we started this process back in October, <laughs> in October um, yeah, so we're finally you, getting to these questions that are bracketed. If you subscribe to the Patreon, uh, then you can uh, get access to the Discord and ask your question and we will get to it in a year. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
<laughs> but so, we will not yeah. skimp. We will not skimp. We will not on skimp on the question once we get to it. Yeah, that I, much we can of promise that you. you. Can be assured. All right. So I guess without further ado, let's jump in. I guess I'll read the first question. This is yeah, from sure. also Andrew on September thirteenth, and they ask. Are you familiar with Julian Jaynes and his magnum opus, The Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind? The gist of Jaynes' argument is that consciousness, as we experience it, is a specific form of metacognition that was preceded by a more basic cognitive system, the titular bicameral mind. This prior cognitive system was characterized by rote repetition of motor programs and periodic command hallucinations that instructed the individual in responding to novel situations. Jaynes's model of consciousness is sound, in my opinion, and it helps explain why creation of a Manchurian candidate could be a realistic R&D project for those who lack scruples. Jaynes' chapter on hypnosis could be a great episode topic, and I bet the Julian Jaynes Society could help you find someone willing to discuss the implications of Jaynes' model of consciousness as they pertain to MKUltra, etc. Yeah. Had you ever heard of the bicameral mind? I, I definitely think have I heard of it. Yeah. I definitely have heard of it, and I remember kind of looking it up years ago yeah. I, I don't know where, through what vector I encountered it, though I was looking around today and I noticed that there's a number of uh, Terrence McKenna videos where he talks about the yeah. bicameral mind no, in I his own kind of context. Interesting, yeah. I think I, I might have discovered it like that. in consciousness is because people started doing mushrooms. Is that like what? I'm pretty sure that's Yeah, the that's the thing it. that yeah. I kind of don't buy about I think it's an interesting framework, but I have to say, like, uh, the whole idea that, like, between the Iliad and the Odyssey, like, people started thinking in a fundamentally different way, where before that, we didn't have consciousness as such, and we just kind of, like, were physical systems responding to our environment, like, through the orders of the other half of our brain, which, like, was perceived as, like, kind of, like, a god, a hallucinatory god. Yeah, um, an audio hallucination. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, like, something to, like, the framework, like, the idea that, the, like, uh, and the relationship to the nature of hallucinations and maybe in, uh, you know, uh, certain phenomena like schizophrenia or things like that. I think mm -hmm. that, the, you know, there might be something there. The whole, like, historical narrative of it, I find, like, less persuasive. Yeah, the idea that, like... Mean. At one point, we thought this way, and then like something dramatic happened that caused it to shift in this way. Like I don't that it's almost quite, like it. It almost yeah. kind of sounds like we were all NPCs for like tens or tens of thousands of years, and then you know something changed and we became like playable characters <laughs> in a certain <laughs> type of way. Kind of, or I guess like we're more we were more like animals, and then we had this kind of. Uh, shift which was really driven by I guess you could say almost like linguistic technology it, it, like of. that allowed but yeah I, I have the it same reservation. It seems almost more like we were PCs like of ourselves and or something like you know we like it was our own consciousness that was giving us orders but we thought that it was like outside of external us. deity yeah like we Much didn't like recognize in a schizophrenic our, situation. Yeah, you, you couldn't distinguish it. between your interior monologue and an outside voice like beaming in your head, yeah. giving you commands. It is, it is intriguing on a variety of levels. I think it would be intriguing enough to, to do an entire episode on to actually read the book because neither of us have. 
Um, I read it like a fair amount of it, like before oh, okay. answering this question. Yeah, <laughs> oh, but okay, um, okay, so you can yeah. speak to it maybe a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's interesting how it kind of it sort of attempts to explain religion in history, and yeah. it kind of syncs up with it to a certain degree. Where oh, okay, like a couple thousand years ago, but also it feels I don't know. It probably would make more sense in the book, but it almost feels like once our minds were integrated, why do we keep believing in God and gods after that? Because yeah. like we became aware. So well, like, I guess what? his idea is that like we created new religious systems in order to try to get back in contact with the gods that were at one time, like much more readily accessible to us. Hmm. And like that is kind of the premise. In terms of like what actually caused it, it like, it's almost like environmental factors. Like he says, like, you know, there was a big like volcanic eruption. There were all these huge upheavals and he kind of links geopolitical uh, changes to like this giant shift in consciousness. Like people, he talks about the, doesn't he talk about the the bronze age collapse as a huge pivot point around 2000 uh, BC or something like that when, like Egypt, like sort of a lot of empires in the Mediterranean kind of area sort of collapsed within kind of like a 50 year period. It is kind of bizarre that yeah. like a pair that that's what I, I think is interesting about this book is it's sort of um, it. I don't know. It, it kicks over some rocks and is like it's an interesting investigation into like trying to find when there was a kind of turning point, you know, a qualitative change in human consciousness and trying to find evidence for it in, like, very distant history. And it just, like, uh, I think maybe looking into, uh, I don't know, whether it's Grail Legends or I think we talked about it on, like, Missing 411 shit about how little we know about the distant past and how mysterious yeah. it is and how you could have all... The, like, I think some people tied the Bronze Age collapse thing to, like, uh, you know, stories of Atlantis and, right. you know, how those... The idea of a lost civilization and... Mm-hmm. I don't know, the idea of uh, humanity undergoing some kind of calamity that we haven't figured out what it is yet is kind of, I don't know, inherently fascinating. Because I'm not saying that it was some kind of like something that he's saying, but even if it was, I mean, people have speculated like, oh, a volcano erupted in Iceland and it like shrouded all of Europe and the Mediterranean you know, and they had a kind of all the crops died on the Nile and it led to like mass social upheaval, you know, things like that. Or yeah. there's a sea level rise. The sea all peoples of, are part of the. Oh, yeah. Sea peoples. Right? I read yeah. a little bit about sea peoples. peoples. Yeah. I never heard about the sea. Pe- see, it's like there's a whole group that there's a lot of Egyptian writing about being attacked by the civilization of like seafaring people that I guess are commonly called sea peoples. Yeah. But like there's no real consensus on like who the hell they were yeah just the peoples of the sea who just showed up um (laughs) yeah it's not clear who exactly they were but yeah i mean that's what they were called at the time um Mm. yeah i remember there's like ugaritic texts that mention them too yeah and i think that he uh that is james mentions them too right he says like that they were maybe motivated by like the consciousness collapse, like that they had sort of like lost their gods that were like telling them not to like pillage everything. And that's why they were like acting crazy. Is that what he says? Maybe he so. does. Well, you know, it sounds about right because the other thing that went through my mind, I listened to a couple interviews with like from this like um, 
Jillian Jane society that's still around. Mm. And one thing that really jumps out is you could like the story of which we've actually talked about quite a bit in different episodes of like the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve and the fall of man and all that stuff and how it, it does kind of neatly fit into metaphorically onto the idea that humans were like living in paradise with their bicameral mind just in running around like not really self-aware and in direct communication with God and then they ate the tree they ate the fruit from the tree of knowledge they became self-aware and mm-hmm. then they were like no like ah, I'm a sentient human now and yeah. you know evil the sin thus entered into the world mm-hmm. you know because through through the uh, both the gift and curse of kind of sentience and consciousness so in that sense I mean it, it's one of these weird kind of things that both is kind of trying to like scientificize religious myths but also in a way like kind of like an Aurelian kind of way like no no the bible actually happened but it was the Elohim who came in UFOs and like yeah. engineered us all I, you know it's right. like oh this is a metaphor for something that really did happen no and I know what you mean it's more it, it gives more uh like ontological reality to religion than the sort of like charlatan theory of it which is yeah, that like just people are stupid and religious and a bunch of priests like told them that they had an imaginary friend. <laughs> You're like, what, you know, it's, yeah, uh, I, I saw the YouTube thing when I was li- listening to that Terrence McKenna video talking about this, like the next up was like Alan Watts explains like the true origins of religion. And it's one of those stupid block text, like things where they write on the video caption. Mm-hmm. And it's just like a big thing of Alan Watts, like the Hill of Golgotha <laughs> with Jesus on it. And they made it all up. <laughs> it's like oh cool okay they made it all i mean i I just find that like kind of not that interesting and kind of lazy to just be like they made it all up yeah to like control people okay Um, bro like it's way more complex than that whether you ultimately believe it or not it's way more complicated than just like so for us to presume that we know not just whether they made it up but how and why they made it up is i think um very like you know historically presumptuous um yeah i also think that there's like a reason why people found these figures in history like trustworthy you know like generally speaking i mean there are definitely people in history who like are charismatic leaders or something like that who you know we generally feel are bad um, I mean, the case of Jesus is a hard, like, case to make that he was actually, like, a bad and manipulative person who was, like, lying or whatever. Unless but, you're Otto Ron, and then, um, you know, in 1938, and then all of a sudden, you know, you realize Jesus was a psyop. Or, you know, there are the people well, out there I that think... he thought Jesus Christ- was a psyop, right? He thought... Well, I guess he I did. Feel like, yeah. No, because it was all Abrahamic, you know, slave religion, blah, blah, blah. There's also, yeah. you know, there's the Roman truthers who, like, Caesar's Messiah type people that believe that, you know... Uh, Jesus, like Christianity was a Roman side, right? Basically, you yeah, know, but I so think that that's that. difficult to sustain, like the idea that, like, all of these people who found Jesus to be persuasive uh, and like trustworthy, like in his own community, were just psyoped by him. Like, I mean, I guess it's mm-hmm. kind of possible, but usually I feel like in this like sweep of history, people who are like full blown psyops, like, there tends to be like a little bit of a reckoning or like an exposure of them, I guess they would say that there has been like by Caesar's Messiah. So I guess so. But yeah, Yeah, but I, Uh, I, 
I think the um, getting back to, you know, bicamerality and yeah. stuff, I don't know. I just feel because one thing I noticed, like listening to some people from the Julian Jane Society is they do seem to be very supportive of evolution and very committed yeah. to kind of the idea of. Of course. Yeah. Darwinian evolution. But I don't know. It also kind of feels like what he's describing here is kind of outside of the slow, gradual change of Darwinian evolution or he's superimposing something on top of it that doesn't exactly well, necessarily I guess in a Darwinian flow model in a Darwinian model consciousness would sort of like slowly build up from like the simplest organisms and get like more and more quote-unquote complex like or okay. you know more and more developed in some way like you know i'm not saying that uh humans are the pinnacle of evolution in the darwinian system <laughs> but in terms of human consciousness you know the or like it kind of is a gradual development to the evolution of humans that would be, but in this it's different where our consciousness happens sort of like as a quick jump forward yeah um which like there, I guess there forward. are some things like that in Darwinian theory, like punctuated equilibrium, right? Where like you suddenly have like big jumps and like a bunch of different species developing at one time. Again, not like a super big expert on this, but yeah, yeah. I'm reading the part about the people it. from the sea right now. And yeah, he basically does say that like, you know, everyone became like crazy because their social control system, the bicameral mind broke down and that was part of the, the sea peoples. But I mean, I don't know that, thing but what you're saying it's like a, yeah i did i did find like a sort of more recent book uh that is sort of uh, an interesting take i think on the theory it's sort of a, a bit critical but also like sees it as being very valuable like it quotes uh richard dawkins i guess who said like this this theory is either a bunch of rubbish or the most brilliant thing ever or whatever you know and uh <laughs> He's uh, this author. Uh, he wrote uh, The Jane's Legacy, uh, Shining New Light Through the Cracks of the Bicameral Mind. So there you go, Shining a Light. Um, uh, shining a but light. Yep. yeah, his take basically is that even though like it has like extreme flaws and like in some ways is rubbish, like it actually uh, is also like a genius in certain ways or has like very interesting ways of thinking about the mind. Who is the author of this? Uh, I have to look him up. Lawrence Weil. Uh, I feel like some of this stuff might come up in our upcoming episode about sus AI because I feel like it it's all wrapped into, you know, the concept of consciousness itself like remains somewhat slippery and many different people define it many different ways. As as high Cajun uh, priestess or, or pagan priestess, uh, Blake Lemoyne said, you go to like a consciousness convention and you have like different groups of scientists all <laughs> talking about it in completely different ways and defining it in different ways. And like, there's not really a unified theory of it, you know, and we all just kind of, you know, chug along kind of thinking we know what it is. But this sounds like this book, it sounds kind of like a bold intervention in yeah. how we think about consciousness and... Uh, um, I mean, yeah, also, this is yeah, uh, this is what Lawrence Weil said, which I think is like an interesting sort of clarification of what is valuable about this theory. And I think that this this resonates with me at least. Uh, he he writes, uh, Julian Jaynes' magnificent failure to explain the origin of consciousness challenges us to re-examine a fundamental tenet of the current neuroscientific paradigm. Consciousness has evolved slowly, steadily, and continuously. That being the fundamental tenet, as Jane points out. The marvelous continuity of life that Darwin and other naturalists have discovered binds us to the terrifying and absolute discontinuity of human consciousness. 
Whereas our simian ancestors have repeatedly genetically programmed patterns of behavior for millions of years, humans have liberated themselves from stimulus-bound programmed behavior to contemplate their origin and change their destiny in the short span of 6,000 years. We have created a world of knowledge that has taken us from fire to atomic energy, from the wheel to spaceships, from marks on stone to electronic terabytes, and from the natural selection of random variations of genetic engineering. Mathematical models of reality verify what technological marvels point towards supersensible transtemporal realities. Only humans have created what Karl Popper called the world of objective knowledge, what Teilhard de Chardin called the new sphere, and what is known to Kabbalists as that. Um, Kabbalists and Thelmite e-girls. James yep. also compels us to re-examine our assumptions about the earliest religious texts. They are not merely primitive superstitions and myths. They also contain factual accounts based on states of consciousness radically different from our own. They provide windows into the recent launching of human consciousness on its vertical trajectory. Exploring Jane's hypothesis that schizophrenia is, at least in part, a return to the mentality of Old Testament prophets could lead us to an understanding of the neuropsychological origins of religion and the ideology of schizophrenia. Having worked intensively with schizophrenics during my early career as a psychiatrist, I can attest to the fascinating intersection between genuine religious experiences and psychosis. During their prodermal and acute psychotic phase of their illness, many schizophrenics report numinous encounters. While auditory hallucinations typically do not dominate those experiences, they are a core feature of schizophrenia, and God, quote-unquote, spoke to the prophets. Jane's hypothesis that schizophrenics are vestiges from the era of prophecy when prophets interpreted command auditory hallucinations issued from the right temporal lobe as the voices of quote-unquote gods is consistent with neuroimaging studies of hallucinating schizophrenics. The hypothesis that schizophrenia is a vestige of an era of prophecy neurologically based on Reisner's fiber is consistent with research conducted by Grigory Vilkov. He injected serum from schizophrenics into rats and showed it had a significant neurotropic effects on subcommissural organ. Sorry, on the subcommissural organ. And it impaired adolesterone production by the adrenal cortex, which is regulated by some subcommissural organ. That's subcommissural organ. Because the average age of onset of schizophrenia in men is 18 and 25 in women, the presence of antibodies against the source of Reisner's fiber and the serum of schizophrenics suggests the persistence of the fiber well past its typical prenatal, sorry, perinatal involution. Individuals with physio-kundalini syndrome or Qigong psychotic reaction. Diagnostic categories in the fringes of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual describing a possible overlap of psychopathology and genuine kundalini or ki awakening could also provide attractive subjects for an investigation of the possibility that they are vestiges from the era of the origin of mystical traditions. The answer to the crucial question of whether the experiences associated with either the right temporal lobe or Reisner's fiber or hallucinations or encounters with the, quote, eternal, infinite, absolute good, unquote, about whom Reverend Jaynes preached, lies in the unexplored realm of neurocosmology. An unintended part of Jane's legacy is that our misgivings about his preposterous proposition that consciousness arose from hallucinating members of advanced civilizations who were actually non-conscious physical systems reacting to their environments compels us to reassess the Whoa. foundation of neuroscience. Consciousness emerged from the evolution of matter. Perhaps the perennial intuition that consciousness is prior to matter, trampled upon by Darwinianism, is true. Another unintended part of Jane's legacy is that his factual interpretation of our earliest religious texts brings attention to the possibility of the earliest references to God were not descriptions of hallucinations, but descriptions of the consciousness of the consciousness behind natural laws and the supersensory perceptions of transcendent realities. So Ooh, interesting. I find that, yeah, like an interesting way of thinking about it, basically, that, you know, this isn't just like a hallucination, but 
It's exactly. actually putting it in, like, you know, but he talks about it in terms of hallucinations, maybe, like, for clarity, but that's not really what he's saying in the sense of hallucination as delusions. Like, this is actually a perception of a real thing, which is consciousness, mm-hmm. and that, you know, can connect us to the sort of source of consciousness, which might be, in this guy's framework, like, pre-material, which I think is interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't want know. to go there right away, but it does sound like, oh, you know, basically uh, early Homo sapiens sort of uh, could could almost, like, see the spirit world and just see, like, Jin like, running around all the time. And then yeah. something happened by which we were sort of cut off from that or there was, like, an evolutionary adaptation to... It actually sounds very similar to what... Aldous Huxley argued in The Doors of Perception, which was all about doing mescaline, he had some kind of theory that it was much more Darwinian and straight up, but that like ancient, you know, Homo sapiens, like very, very far back, were able to sort of experience reality in a sensory way and like more of a kind of naturally psychedelic thing. Mm-hmm. But because it is not amenable to survival to like, stare at a flower all day and like admire its <laughs> beauty because you'll get eaten by a tiger eventually our brains sort of evolved to like pare down those experiences to just like much more of a pragmatic level of like okay where's the food like can i eat that like you know blah 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 and that's how you know humans eventually like became the rational beings that they are and then of course when you take psychedelics like it opens back oh up like God. the full spectrum of light and love and all that kind oh of my shit God. Yeah, well, yeah, I think so. that there's like something to that and that, yeah, I think that uh, like, but it's really like not so much like a physical or like biological thing. Uh, so like, uh, or I mean, I guess James isn't necessarily saying that it's biological, but I think, you know, in many ways it's cultural, you know, maybe that is kind of what he's suggesting that it's, it's social in part. Uh, it seems to be, it's like a bit unclear, like how that could be, you know, maybe when you're yeah, maybe when you're born or like when you, you know, are young that hasn't quite set in yet, but being in your environment kind of pushes you to the side of the bicameral mind. Uh, again, you know, I had to read. Uh, I've heard. Deeply uh, to like really, I mean, but, I think people yeah. have made arguments about that, about like how children. If babies know, could like, speak, they'd be the most intelligent beings on earth. Yeah, like they, they can yeah. see ghosts and all this other stuff. And then they sort of like lose that ability as they uh, right. develop yeah. and all that it's shit. It's the premise of the movie Baby Geniuses, right? Um, <laughs> and also Jane Smith's suite. But uh, no, right, but I think right. that like that kind of has like culturally happened like over time. Like there were like cultural technologies and techniques that were designed to cultivate like the ability to perceive what that guy Lawrence Weil was referring to as like super sensory uh, reality or transcendent realities, things that are like sort of part of the world, but maybe uh, have been sort of pushed to the fringes of perception there were more mainstream at different times in the past cultural technologies, uh, you know, in terms of like, uh, tech, like technology of the self in the Foucauldian sense, you know, like uh, yeah. practices and uh, modalities by which you can kind of train yourself to have a sensitivity to that, which, you know, still True. proliferate like mostly very subculturally and sometimes yeah. in a very sus way. But, uh, mm-hmm. and psychedelics is in some respects one of them, but, uh, you know, it's not very disciplined and can open yourself up to being uh, harassed by by, by many genes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. Um, I mean, what do you think about the uh, like the hypnosis MK Ultra Manchurian candidate angle? Because I didn't yeah, read the book, so I, mean, I, I, I can't really speak on it. Well, outside how- of the that part, like, doesn't necessarily have to 
do with like the historical narrative per se. Like that's more about sort of the framework of thinking about the mind. And, you know, I, I mean, maybe this like model consciousness does have like some role to play like in a narrative of history. I think, you know, the sort of sharp, uh, you know, I, I have some qualms with the historical narrative, but in terms of like the actual model of consciousness, I mean, I don't know if it's perfect. I, I think that I'm not an expert on, on consciousness, nor do I want to be like a consciousness bro who's all about like, you know, the power of consciousness. But, you know, I, I do think that that like that part is interesting because basically it's sort of framing hypnosis as putting you back into this kind of like command state, you know, like where that was kind of how people were functioning previously. I think that uh, that was even indicated in also Andrew's question, sort of that. Yeah. So know. basically like Sirhan would be hearing like he would be back in bicameral, mo bicameral yeah. range mode and the voice that I mean, I guess could, in that case, the, the implication being that maybe you could train somebody through hypnosis to hear specific commands. And yeah, specific basically voices. the hypnotist would like craft like a god for the person or play that role. And then it they would kind respond. of terrifying to think yeah. about, like, I'm going to implant a tulpa in your head that's going to tell you when to kill. And ugh. yeah, it's yeah, interesting. Well, I mean, whether whether or not like that's how like MK Ultra style hypnosis like works per se or whether like there's different modes i think that that sort of framework for like mind control like could work whether that was the case with sirhan like per se maybe but i think that like it's, it's something that like i think you could do like through hypnosis or other methods like shaping someone who's either already schizophrenic or you know or already has a, a tendency towards auditory hallucinations or some you know or you can yeah. maybe even theoretically like with enough like intensive techniques like you could induce something like that exactly exactly yeah. i mean yeah we talked about candy jones a lot and kind of how it seems like she was uh they were able to do that um to her to get her to do follow very specific instructions and yeah it's interesting it like the, the whole like alter well. type thing you know it's a bit like of a different way of thinking about it but like where you know it's not just like kind of the physical body and then like the separate consciousness but the whole idea of like the, the separation of consciousness that happens in these sort of like induced kind of, for lack of a better term, DID situations. Um, yes, you know, exactly. Well, th that was, that was, set up, yeah. that was the other thing that I think listening to, um, yeah, I think listening to Terrence McKenna talk about this. And of course I found his spin to be kind of sus overall. It was <laughs> one of those videos, with like a new agey kind of like audio right. ambient audio track behind it that you could like meditate to and like let him really warm inside your brain. But, <laughs> uh, but one thing I think that he focused it on and jumped out at me. And I think it kind of sums up a lot about this theory is kind of like the centrality of, cause okay, this is how he described the bicameral mind working is that basically, you know, humans almost were like animals, like most of the time they mm -hmm. kind of went around and like followed their just kind of like biological programming and did their thing and blah, blah, blah. But then it was in moments of great danger or great stress or great uh, fright that this kind of switch happened and a voice would speak to them and like command them what to do to get out of the situation. And so that's like the right brain, sort of quote-unquote voice of God that Jane's is all about, you know, dive, trying to 
basically like prove in this book. Mm -hmm. But it made me think about, okay, first of all, it made me think, because I'm pretty sure this book made the rounds in all kind. everybody from Marshall McLuhan to probably all the Esalen people and people at Stanford. There are definitely some sus lords reading this book and like cherry picking ideas from it. So it it gave me a little bit of a yikes to think that, oh, this guy is saying that dissociative trauma is like central to like human evolution, to like the evolution of human consciousness and like evolutionary optimization or something like that where it's like when you are traumatized like when a tiger jumps out and you have to fight or flight or whatever that's when somehow your like psyche cracks open and the spirit comes and talks to you and tells you like gives you secrets and like tells you what to do i just could think of like all kinds of like spooky kind of experimental applications of just that idea of it i'm like oh so now Maybe we should try to do that where we subject, like, do some Phoenix program type shit or, you know, MK type shit where we subject people or, you know, the whole kind of monarch thing, right? Mm -hmm. That, hey, maybe if we subject people and especially again, like, like we talked all the way back in our Aquino episode, if you do this to, um, uh, to children, um, before a certain age when perhaps, you know, their brains haven't developed to a point you know, where they're still in a more like primitive state um, and a more uh, malleable state, then, oh, maybe you could trigger this like dissociative trauma and that opens the door to implanting like the voice of God or something very twisted like that. Yeah. I, Just a yeah, thought. I, I don't know if anybody so. actually I mean, I did think that, that, but... I mean, in general, children probably would be better, but uh, to do experiments on it, like mold or uh implant like uh triggers or auditory hallucinations and yeah definitely more impressionable yeah. i think we can conclude that but or even just on yeah. a broader societal level like uh, the idea of like the benefits of inflicting emotional or like a dissociative trauma upon like the human psyche in order to like open them up to a state where you could mold them in general even on like a you know 9-11 is mass ritual tip or something like that like yeah if you could have a huge spectacular event that almost like triggers everybody back into their like cave person mind of like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) yeah, it's like, that's why everyone saw like the hand of God, like in the clouds, like rising out of the world trade center because they were all reverting back to like, you know, tell us something God, whether or not it has to do with like the bicameral mind theory. I think that's kind of like the observation that the bicameral mind theory is based on in a way like that's Mm -hmm. definitely true that when people are like shocked you know, it's kind of like how if you, when I was a kid, I used to go to these uh, like DNA camps, you know, because my parents didn't know like what I would be interested in or whatever and wanted me to find a hobby, as I mentioned before. So one of them this was like, is, This science. is a running theme. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. but uh, you know, yeah, they weren't super pleased with what I ended up being interested in. But so one of the things like, oh yeah, maybe you'll be into science. It wasn't really, but I went to a couple of summers like going to like a, a DNA based camp where you would do like kind of like gene splicing. Um, really? and like basic experiments what? made like bacteria glow. Did you ever do that in biology class? And, um, no, we never did that much of a thing. And I never, I never really went to like a science camp. I don't yeah, think we ever made could, bacteria glow. Yeah. We gave like the bacteria, like, uh, the genes of like a firefly or some kind of like bioluminescent thing to make them glow. And I remember that like part of the process, I mean, I might not even be remembering it correctly, but part of the process was you had to like get something really hot and then get something 
really cold or maybe get it really cold and then get it really hot because that makes the pores open. I think that humans do that as well. Like if they jump into like a hot pool and then get out and it's cold, the pores open or maybe in reverse. Yeah, that's why like Russians like go to sauna and then they jump in the cold pool right afterwards. Yeah, 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 yeah. It opens your pores, right? I think it's the same thing with like it's a shock, you know, Uh, that's like a a temperature based shock. But Mm. it kind of yeah makes you like more receptive to suggestion or to anything that could be implanted whether it's like who's you know, running genes. this sus dna camp that you went to uh, it's like it sponsored was, by epstein and like I'm, mit like no it was at like where <laughs> dna was discovered watson and crick yeah it was at like they're like an oyster bay on long island oh okay yeah it wasn't like a sleep out by montauk thing. yeah um <laughs> yeah out by montauk um Although, uh, yeah, they, they stole everything from Rosalind Franklin, right? That's what I've heard. Um, oh, okay. We'll have to get so, the sus DNA one day because didn't they take a bunch of LSD like before they figured out oh, the double? Yeah, didn't they see them, the, like, double the double helix on helix LSD? Yeah. Like, yeah. But I thought they stole the idea from the, of the double helix from Rosalind Franklin. So that's like a psyop too, isn't I wonder it? If that's an, I wonder if that is a psyop. Like they told everybody that so that every like, scientist eh, like was like, yeah, oh my God, I got to take like, acid. Yeah, exactly. When they stole the whole concept of the double helix. Maybe it was like the trick the Soviets and being like we found like the creativity drug and like we're gonna beat you now because they're buttered about people Sputnik. people were fucked up. Watson and Crick were fucked up. Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, that's where I went to camp. Um, okay. So yeah, there you go. Um, hopefully that's not fucking sus as hell. Uh, they do we'll get funding from the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation, so maybe Fauci is funding it. Okay, wow. But, okay, um, yeah. Raising his little gifted children, you yeah. know, for the next Unfortunately, generation. Unfortunately, I wasn't very gifted. Or, I mean, I guess fortunately, I wasn't very gifted at it. Um, you didn't get recruited into, like, the Chimera program. No, I've never done any. I've Like, you know, that's why we always talk shit about science on the show, because, like, I, it's just that of vindictiveness. Uh, that's <laughs> not very good at science. <laughs> um, but... Okay. Uh, anyway, so yeah, yeah. All but, right, uh, yeah. In 2000, Watson suggested a link between skin color and sex drive. Hypothesizing that darker skinned people have stronger libidos. Okay, bro. That's why you have Latin lovers. He said, "What the hell?" Um, what the fuck? Damn. Uh, he he also believes in the like, genetic differences in, uh, like racial IQ, like race differences in IQ. Damn. Wow. Um, okay. Very, very, very scientific. Oh, maybe he didn't go to Yale. Uh, Julian Jaynes went to Yale. Sorry. That's where he got his PhD. But anyways, yeah. he's also a pacifist in what he was a Unitarian pacifist in World War II. I wonder if he knew Lou Hill. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, I think that uh, to the analogy to the, the plasmid situation, I think that's what it's called, the plasmid. You put like the plasmid into the cells, a genetic structure that a cell can replicate independently of the chromosomes, particularly a, str- a small circular DNA strand in the cytoplasm of a bacterium of protozoan. Plasmids are much used in the laboratory manipulation of genes. I, I did learn something. So yeah, you would mm. use the plasmids, and to get them in, you'd have to make the bacteria open their pores. So you would use like that type of thing. Torture. Like, uh, yeah. <clears throat> but anyway. Interesting. Um, Interesting. So okay. like, the point yeah. of that <laughs> analogy was that you can use it to splice people, but you can also use it to splice the same technique of like a great shock or like a huge transition or like a sudden shift in the environment. You can also use that to insert uh, mimetic plasmids into people uh, or no. things and psyop them. Wow. Um, uh, it all yeah. lines up, doesn't it? A mimetic yeah. plasmid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's mm-hmm. the thoughts uh, as above, so below. Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Well, um, um, should we move on to number two now? You want to read that? 
Uh, sure. Let me open the workflow over here. Okay. Peace Meal asks, thoughts on Samuel Delaney and or his book, Times Square Red, Times Square Blue? This is an interesting question. Did you ever read that book? I didn't know, like, what was, like, I'm not sure, like, what is super SJ about. I mean, it's, like, kind of an interesting book. I read the essays. I had never I mean, not heard fully, of it. But I looked, I looked at them. Um, Times Square Red is more of, like, an essay. Times Square Blue is more of a memoir. But It's about, like, sexual adventures in Times Square. That's what Times Square Blue is kind of about. And Times Square Red is more of like a social reflection on the consequences of like the change in Times Square. That's right. And like the gentrification of New York and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that sounded really interesting. I had really kind of never heard of Samuel Delaney before. And I guess he was a big sci-fi author as well, right? Yeah. Like quite quite an established one. Yeah. Um, No, but he won a bunch of awards, yeah. And he he grew up in Harlem. He is African-American. Uh, he went to the Dalton School, actually. Yeah, his dad ran a funeral home. Yeah, I guess he sort of grew up around kind of the Harlem Renaissance type thing. Or actually, no, he was born in 1942, never mind. But I think it, maybe his you know family sort of came out of that. Yeah, I mean, I haven't read it, but it sounds interesting. Same with the science fiction. I don't know exactly if it is SJ or he has a book called Through the Valley of the Nest of Spiders. <laughs> um yeah Babel well this 17. edition that i have was published i guess by sexual cultures it's interesting they uh, the editors of this edition at least were uh, which i guess is a, a like a collection or a sort of uh you know program of different publications is a 20th anniversary edition but the, yeah the editors of the whole series were ann pellegrini tavia nyango so those are some big names jose esteban munoz big names and like queer and performance theory, you know, not saying that's us, everyone, uh, you know, just so you know, and that wasn't a homophobic remark. I was just making a note. Yeah. Do you know he actually got, um, he got kind of railroaded by Gloria Steinem in 1972 because he oh, wrote that. two issues of Wonder Woman. Um, and I get, this is interesting, during a controversial period in the publication's history, when the lead character abandoned her superpowers and became a secret agent. So he scripted uh, two episodes. That's interesting. He was gonna, yeah, right? Uh, like, I thought she already was, was kind of a secret the agent. the show, the Wonder Woman show? No, it was the comic. Oh, okay. Yeah, so he was brought in to write. It's interesting yeah, they would call it episodes then. Eh, whatever. Issues. Uh, or yeah, or oh, it said issues. Yeah, issues right, 202 right. and 203. He was going to do a six-issue arc that would actually culminate in a battle over an abortion clinic, but the story arc was canceled after Gloria Steinem led a lobbying effort protesting the removal of Wonder Woman's powers, a a change predating Delaney's involvement. That's literally like when people freak out over Spidey being black or something. You know, it's it's like, it's weird. Um, again, don't worry, just wait. (laughs) Like, it's so stupid. Are you kidding me? It says here that scholar Anne Matsuchi concluded that Steinem's feedback was, quote, conveniently used as an excuse use by dc management so i guess they maybe they were nervous about doing like an abortion clinic arc and then gloria steinem kind of swooped in you know and was like wonder woman doesn't have superpowers and so they canceled the rest of the series Still, what the hell unless they like put her up to it or something that seems like insane for her to say like i know she's cia and everything but yeah I can't imagine that there was like an intelligence interest in canceling this Uh, hold on well Okay, I don't right. know. Well, I mean, come on. Like, well, what was Gloria, CIA agent Gloria Steinem doing, like, derailing Delaney's uh, six-part series? I don't know. It does series. seem very stupid and baffling, but I can't, I can't imagine what the, 
like CIA motivation would be. Well, hold on a second too, okay, because right, right. okay, this was in when was this? This is in 1972. Mm-hmm. I think this is kind of relevant okay. to right now. That was one year before oh, wow. the Supreme nice. Court decided Roe v. Wade. So abortion, I think, was it was controversial at the moment, but it was not legalized yet by the Supreme Court. So mm-hmm. I could do a lot of speculating <laughs> as to what the CIA <laughs> yeah, was up to. I guess to. I'm starting to see this angle a little bit. But, uh, like, you know, if I were Alex Jones, it'd be like, the globalists, like, wanted to legalize abortion, so they sent CIA agent Gloria Steinem to, like, cancel the abortion clinic. I don't know. But I feel like that um, would be the opposite, because... Like, I would assume Delaney was pro-abortion. I would assume. Yeah, I would assume. And I would assume Gloria Steinem was as well. Yeah, um, so why would she... Maybe, well, maybe they, they did it. Maybe they wanted to. But uh, how, like, much propaganda effect could this Wonder Woman story have? Hold on, though. But, like, that's where I'm going to stop you there. Excuse me. This is, like, comic books we're talking about, right? Yeah. And we see today with the MCU and all their cool, like, Air Force jets and valorizing the military-industrial complex and the CIA. And how I think, while, you know, as as we've discussed, I think it's it's gotten... It's a bit different at the time, though. It's a bit different in the 70s. Though, I mean, Wonder Woman kind of was, even back then, a kind of popular figure. She had a T... I don't know if she had the TV show yet in 72. She had the TV show at at some point close to In the 70s. Yeah, before she married the BCCI guy, (laughs) you know, and whatever, Linda Carter. But, yeah, I don't know enough about Wonder Woman. That's almost a whole other thing, but... I think the sort of weapon... Also, it's weird, like, she... Well, okay, hold, wait, another thing. She was a secret agent at the time, and she had abandoned her superpowers, so then literal secret agent Gloria Steinem protests this. I don't know if she protested her being a secret agent or just that she had abandoned her superpowers, but I wonder if that had anything to do with her not liking it. I feel like Wonder Woman always has... Yeah, I think you're right. She kind of does always have a little bit of a spy vibe because she is in that invisible plane a lot, which is like a very like sort of, you know, like secret aerospace project type of thing. You know? Yeah, and she's both both kind of a femme fatale and a super soldier. Yeah, well, Wonder Woman was invented. I feel like there's like a lot of like sus stuff around like the creation of Wonder Woman, right? Like the guy who created Wonder Woman is kind of a freak, like... You know, a psychologist. Yeah, I mean, I'm William not, not kink shaming. Not kink shaming. I think there was more to oh, it. Oh, no, we did. We just. Wait, did we talk about? Was like, who did we talk about? Was it Henry Murray or something? I feel like we brought this up in some. Maybe it was another Q and A episode. Yes, he he was Polly. That's what happened. Yes, he had two two women in his life: Elizabeth Holloway Marston mm-hmm. and their polygamous life partner Olive Byrne. And I guess like both those women greatly influenced wow actually weird yeah i feel like he was like abusive too like or something like you know he was like a weirdo like as well like he wasn't a poly man in the 50s being abusive tying things up like you know tying people's wrists up or whatever well Uh, get get this along with his what he was a psychologist along with his wife elizabeth holloway he invented an early prototype with a lie detector Oh, wow. Yeah. That's and, you know, what is Wonder Woman, like, one of her main weapons is, what, the lasso, the lasso of, truth. of truth. Right. That truth serum. Really truth. Yeah. Which Just she always MK ended up Ultra. being tied up in herself somehow. Um, wow. Yeah. I mean, very, yeah, he wrote some screenplays. He went to Harvard. I guess he worked in Hollywood for a little while, Universal. Yeah, he had children with both women. 
He was the creator of the, the systolic blood pressure test, another lasso of truth in a certain kind of way. And, well, okay, I see that is one of the components of the modern polygraph is a, the blood pressure monitor. Oh, I see. Huh, interesting. He wrote a lot of essays on popular psychology. Emotions of Normal People was another essay. He viewed people behaving along two axes with their attention being either passive or active, depending on the individual's perception of his or her environment as either favorable or antagonistic. Okay, anyways, yeah, he made Wonder yeah. Woman in 1940 and uh, right up there with Batman, you know, created yeah, around the I same guess, time as Batman. I guess maybe I was not remembering, so not to slander this guy, at least maybe there's something else out there, but I'm not immediately seeing anything. I mean, this wasn't really in the necessarily in the vein of the question directly, but uh, so I wasn't, you know, uh, I'm not super up on this guy, so maybe I'm missing something. I'm not seeing anything immediately about, like, any kind of actual controversies around him being abusive, abusive. but okay. uh, it does seem like he had some weird ideas. Like, uh, he described female nature as being more capable of submission emotion. He referred to submission as a noble practice and did not shy away from the sexual implications, saying, the only hope for peace is to teach people who are full of pep and unfound po unbound force to enjoy being bound. Only when the control of self by others is more pleasant than the unbound assertion of self in human relationships can we hope for a stable, peaceful human society. Giving to others, being controlled by them, submitting to other people cannot possibly be enjoyable without a strong erotic element. <laughs> About male readers, he later wrote, give them an alluring woman stronger than themselves to submit to and they'll be proud to become our willing slaves. He's pro-dom. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. He was also, I guess he was pretty good friends yeah. with uh, Margaret Sanger. Ah. which I kind of brings around the whole abortion clinic arc of the comic book. And I guess, I guess originally he was in uh, like Wonder Woman. Is that true? Wo Wonder Woman always was from the beginning, a native of an all female utopia of Amazons who became a crime fighting U S government agent. So yeah. I guess she was a U.S. government well, agent. She also came out during World flag, War II. Right? That's true. She also came out during World War II. So that she's got like the American flag all over her body. I think so. I, mean, I like, think in terms so. Of her costume. And yeah, I guess his version of Wonder Woman contained many, many bondage themes. I mean, I guess yes. think about it, the Lasso of Truth. She is. Yeah, I mean, her bracelet. Wait a minute. She basically is a, a, a kind of a dominatrix. Yeah, kind of. Although I think she would always be like tied up in the early comics too. Well, yeah, sign of the times, but right. yeah, but um, it, I mean, hmm, interesting, interesting. So yeah, yeah, I don't know that I, I'd like to, th that'd be interesting to do like a dive on like sort of, I don't know, sus one, but also in the early seventies, I think it had happened by this point, you know, who owned DC in the early seventies? I think it was like the Kinney national parking company thing, like Warner communications owned them. So, like, they were kind of owned by the mafia at that point. So, mm -hmm. I don't know. But uh, I wish I had more to say about um, Samuel Delaney. But yeah, well, I have there not was read enough. parts of Times Square Red that I thought were kind of interesting when talking about, yeah, there are certain interesting things that uh, he brought up. He did have yeah. a sci-fi book called The Fall of the Towers. No. No. Wow, he's not coming. Well, he was right there in New York. Uh, 1970. It's a 30-year conspiracy. Yeah, this is uh, what he has to say about uh, Times Square. When I say I hope Times Square will work, my major fear is that the developers themselves do not know that they are lying. It is only the very young who have seen too many mob movies who believe criminals make better businessmen than fools. 
The fact is, there is just a, as large a percentage of foolish criminals as there are foolish businessmen. Those who have seen criminals in business usually don't like it any more than they like to see fools running things. Theoreticians like Jacobs have given us some conceptual tools to understand the workings of certain city functions that, before her books, were largely invisible. It would be warming to think that the developers might use those principles to produce profitable and vigorous urban spaces. What I'm afraid may happen is, however, that they are willing to gamble on the very high possibility that, after the immediate profits of the sweetheart deals that have allowed them to build their brave new mall, they will take the money and run, having bamboozled the rest of us into letting them build another artificial overextended downtown graveyard. The reason the most famous four office towers were temporarily condensed to one, a fact that seems to warm Marshall Berman's heart, with an interim 10-year plan to promote theater and entertainment, that is pure Orwellian newspeak, was that they would be impossible to rent. In the 70s, that fact was given enough media play to discourage investors. The Times Square renovations have already demolished some 30 theater and film spaces in some 30 separate buildings in the area, and refurbished two. Plans are to replace the destroyed spaces with two multiplex theater buildings. At the end of 10 years, the four towers will be built. In 1992, we emerged from 12 years of a National Republic administration that favored big business, with the result that we now have some very strong businesses indeed. The argument the Reagan-Bush leaders used to convince the public this was a good thing, uh, capital G, capital T, was the promise of tax cuts and the trickle-down economic theory. The trickle-down economic theory, you may recall, was the notion that somehow big businesses would be helpful and supportive to small businesses. It has taken half a dozen years for New Yorkers to learn, at least, that anyone over 35, what anyone over 35 could have told them in 1980 when Reagan was elected. Big businesses drive out small businesses. Left unsupervised, big businesses stamp out small businesses, break them into pieces, devour their remains, and dance frenziedly on their graves. Now that we have Watch Barnes & Noble destroy Books & Company on the east side and Shakespeare & Company on the west, and in my own neighborhood, seen the Dwayne Reed pharmacy chain put Lansky & Benz, or Lasky & Benz, and several other small drug sources of business, yeah, people have true. some models of the quality of service and general atmosphere of pleasant interchange to be lost when big businesses destroy small ones. This is the part that I found to be interesting. Small businesses thrive on contact. The word-of-mouth reputations that contact uh, engenders. Sorry, contact engenders. You're looking for X? Try Q's. It really is good for what you want. Big businesses promote networking as much as they possibly can. Shop at ours and be a part of today, vibrating all over the airwaves in a $3 million ad campaign. In mm -hmm. one sense, the Times Square takeover is one of the larger and more visible manifestations of the small being obliterated by the large. We are in a period of economic growth, we all know. But most of us are asking, why then isn't my life more pleasant? The answer is that, quote-unquote, pleasantness is controlled by small business diversity and social contact. And in a democratic society that values social movement, social opportunity, and class flexibility, interclass contact is the most rewarding, productive, and thus privileged kind of contact. There is no way people can move comfortably between classes if the classes themselves do not have repeated pleasant social interactions with one another, class war or not. Big business is anti-contact in the same way that it is anti-small business. But there are many tasks that small businesses, like bookstores, stationery stores, and often drugstores, can do more efficiently for the customers and more pleasantly, that word again, than can mm -hmm. big businesses and large chain outlets. And again, certain benefits from contact, networking simply cannot provide. This is uh, just an interesting little addendum to that. I think that's uh, like you know provocative enough, but this is all just kind of little side mm -hmm. note. An academic who heard an earlier version of this argument told me that it explained a family phenomenon that in his younger years had puzzled and sometimes embarrassed him. 
Uh, maybe you can relate to this. I think I can. Whenever we would go with my grandfather to a restaurant, my grandpa had been born and grew up in Italy. Within 10 minutes, he had everybody in the restaurant talking not only to him, but to everybody else. The question in his grandson's mind, why do you have to do that, Gramps? The answer he realized from my talk, how else did an unlettered laborer such as his grandfather in the 1930s and 1940s go into a new neighborhood, a new area, and get work? A reasonable argument might be made that a notable percentage of the homeless population in our cities today is comprised of men and women who grew up in social enclaves that counted on contact relations to provide those prized necessities, jobs, shelter, and friendship, a social practice at which often we can see that they are very good, but uh, who were unsuited both by temper and education for the more formal stringencies of networking relations. In networking situations, one secures work and social necessities through want ads, resumes, recommendations, job applications, real estate listings, and social interest groups, a mode of social practice that an urban venue after urban venue has displaced contact relations. You want a job? Show up tomorrow morning at 6.30. I'll put you to work. Till there are hardly any left. Hmm. So I, I kind of I vibe with that. Yeah. I vibe with that. I'm pro-contact relations, I think. Yeah. Um, and it's I, interesting I, I the parallels to, like, today, especially with lockdowns and everything. Like, you know, Absolutely. it's a big part of the lockdown discourse, you know, the sort of so he wrote this what in small like, businesses. Yeah, what did he write this in, like, 1990, 1991? Yeah, I think 1992-ish. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. So, like, bad lieutenant era um, of New York. Still, still got a lot of grime on it. But, I mean... 1999. Like, oh, 99. Okay. Yeah. Still before 9-11, all that mm. stuff. Um, I think that's pretty, yeah, that's pretty damn spot on. And I think we've only seen that rapidly accelerate over the last couple of years. Yeah. Definitely yeah. reminds you of like lockdown every, and also the idea of big companies like selling you like this kind of weird networking experience of like being a part of the future yeah. and shit. Like instead of like go down to the store, they have what you need. They have the best X, Y, Z like specifically. Yeah. And now know? like literally they're telling people to shop virtually in the metaverse, <laughs> which is like completely insane. It's so alienating. And then yeah. I, I do feel like that also that, that might be another knock-on effect or casualty of this, like, supreme, like, network culture alienation is kind of the homelessness um, uh, crisis, I guess you could say, in California, because it is quite, it's yeah. quite bad, and the government really doesn't know, like, beyond kind of throwing people in jail randomly, it has no real solutions for it. But a lot of times, like, I, that thought has crossed my mind where, you know, people who grew up elsewhere in social enclaves who get kind of ejected from that and then maybe, you know, whether it could be economic misfortune or mental illness or drug addiction, things like that, you end up completely alienated in a big city and more than ever, like, there's nothing around, but there's like kind of nothing person to person to like grab onto or there's much less than there used to be. Yeah. I mean, I always thought that it's, like, obnoxious that, like, I'm sure in some sectors of the economy this still, you know, can apply, but it's almost like it's gone extinct, that idea of, like, you want to you want to work? Okay, show up here at 6.30 tomorrow. And just, like, that simple, like, I fucking hate, I cannot understate how much I hate, like, applying in, like, the modern environment for, like, <laughs> jobs and stuff. Yeah. Because now they want so much of you. You know, yeah, like tell do. us what motivates you. Like they want to do a whole like MK assessment of like your like a parallax view fucking assessment. They literally of, like, your personality. want to have like total access to like your entire life. That is like so uh -huh. sus. Like, 
I've been, you know, like around like the uh, recent Roe v. Wade uh, overturning, like I, you know, have been reading some articles about like some of the laws in these states, especially the one in Texas where like everyone's like deputized, like report people who have had an abortion. And like, you know, obviously, like at a certain point, you can't really tell the difference between someone who's had a miscarriage and had an abortion. So like if you get like investigated, if you get reported and like, an, you know, an investigation gets opened into you, the cops will like take your phone and like search through it to like find out. Like, if, you know, you've been searching up abortion to try to determine whether you had a miscarriage or not, or, like, when you had your periods and things like that. It's like... Jesus. Yeah. Like, there was some woman, I don't know if it was in Texas, but, like, the cops, like, took her phone, and she maintains that she had a miscarriage, but the cops, like, took her phone, and, like, they were, you know, they found, like, some search for, like, about abortion, and they are like, she went to jail for, like, 18 months or something. God. Yeah, See, that's um, insane. I feel like we're getting it from both sides right that's now. That's like the both, truly insane like, thing that's like, that's not acceptable. Like whatever your yes. position on like abortion, like that's just outrageous. Like you need to fix this stuff, like ha- not having to accept. Anyway, I'm digressing, but like, yes, yeah, um, these. No, yeah. but I know what you mean, though. I feel like we're getting it from we're getting like a pincer attack right now. Or on the one hand, it's like, like, wear your mask, like get a million vaccine shots if you want to fucking work and like, you know, all that shit. Uh, and then on the other side, it's like we're going to send like like Blade Runner units after you if like you had an ectopic abortion to like throw you in jail. And like, well, why is like the, the impulse? Like, yeah, like, why is the impulse to criminalize and militarize all this shit and like evil. just clamp down on us? It's truly evil, us? like the invasion of privacy that like it's facilitated, like the kind of, you know, yeah, like. I mean, I don't necessarily think that it's actually true that, like, any society really, like, observed the level of, like, stringency around abortion that, like, some of these people, like, want to apply. But, like, the fact that, like, the level of, like, privacy invasion is facilitated by these devices and these things that are supposed to be conveniences or sources of pleasure. And then they become, like, uh-huh. you know, these things that, like, allow us to be, like, just... To, like yeah like uh susceptible to this type of thing it's like de- it's deranged and truly like evil. he said in the advertisement like, come be a part of the future yeah they, they they're holding today. yeah they didn't say um, what kind of future it would be yeah come be a part of today yeah god you know and now it's true i mean yeah we've uh it's now this technology that's overlaid into all of our lives and it could be used by multiple tendencies for various different reasons but the end result ends up being more control, more surveillance, yeah. less kind of being left alone. And in no, general. you're right that like when you apply to jobs, like they want to like, yeah, they want to know everything about, they have the same expectation, like of knowing everything about you. You know, they want like, to like straight up. They want to know your Myers-Briggs. Yeah. Like they want to know, <laughs> they want you to dance for it and yeah. smile and do and, all like, this emotional them, like, labor. Social media and like uh-huh. be, have like a, you know, what do they call it? Like a spam uh, Instagram for them, like the spam culture where you like overshare. They want you to have like an oversharing Instagram that like, oh you yeah, show to them <laughs> like it's it's you could uh, see how i mean honestly like how is that not I, i'm not i'm not even saying that they all read that like peter Thiel essay about how to run your startup like a cult but i'm saying that like the processes of these tech companies and how they all operate now it's so ingrained in them that they want like all of you and they it is culty just on a structural level and i feel like even if the people hiring and the managers aren't actively thinking about, all right, now it's time to like brainwash the new employees. Mm-hmm. Like it's so baked into the whole process that, and by necessity, if you're a, an, a new employee who is aware of what's expected of you, you're 
probably going to, in most cases going to go along with it and then like how much does that shape your consciousness as you start if you become that oversharer on Instagram that is always gesturing towards kind of really what your employer wants you to do and stay away from things that your employer wouldn't like and all these things and everything's visible you're in this lovely glass panopticon getting paid a good salary but that's why like sometimes i think when you see like tech people that seem so kind of like weird and out of touch and like lame i think it's like oh they've like molded themselves and they've been shaped and they've allowed themselves to be shaped by this thing and now they're like these automaton like out of these like labor aristocrat um automatons that all adopt like the i, I mean yeah, i hate to ever use Orwell words, but like groupthink and stuff. <laughs> and they all think is like one mind. And that's why, you know, I think you can see uh, that's kind of a dangerous, it's not the kind of solidarity, like I would put at the top of my list for in terms of like workplace solidarity. Like it's a very sinister, like twisted version of getting everybody on the same page, you know, but like not so that they can like collectively organize and defend their own interests from their employer. No, it's all in partnership with their employer who mm -hmm. just wants to help and, you know, just wants to make the world a better place. Uh, so, yeah, sorry. We uh, hmm. went very far afield. <laughs> but, well, that was, like, more okay. related than our long digression about Wonder Woman and whether Gloria Steinem did, like, a, you know, PSYOP attack. On True. Undermined this I mean, writer. that is weird. Think... It's very, very weird that she would, like, complain about Wonder Woman not having her powers when she was still, like, a sort of James Bond-type figure and it was just, like, one story arc. Yeah, to be perfectly honest, and I... that guy I, would get fired when he wasn't even, like, the inventor of that story arc, right? Yeah, like, it got canceled. Yeah, on. he only got to do two issues, and he was yeah, supposed to do six. Yeah, and then they said, that, like, and Gloria Steinem complained about the story arc that he wasn't even the originator of, and then he yeah. got fired. Yes, because he weird. sort of, it's almost like, what, he did he falsely accuse him of not, of, like, not making Wonder Woman a girl boss anymore who had superpowers? Like I don't know. It's just the most, uh, it truly ain't nothing new. I thought that <laughs> the kind of, um, not just uh, always like comics, I think have been sus for a long time and uh, every derivative thereof. But I thought that a lot of like the culture war bullshit around fighting about like representation in comics was much newer. But I guess it was going back, it was totally going on in the early 70s and like Gloria Steinem was like at the forefront of like, we need to cancel DC because like they took away Wonder Woman's superpowers. You know, it's like, it very, it's very similar to like, oh my God, they made Spidey Black yeah. or, you know, something along those lines. Like anything that people get mad about today of like, oh my God, I can't Things that are like the ultimate like pillar of all politics and like e the most significant thing in the entire world that like we must rally around like the like spidey's race <laughs> yeah or like uh, yeah a wonder woman like it's too dangerous <laughs> like wonder woman's line of like openly defending abortion clinics is like too radical and like we need to uh, like low-key i don't know it's it's biz I, I mean i guess i don't know i'd have to look at what she said and whatever op-eds she wrote about why something needed to change with Wonder Woman. I am curious. I'm looking up Gloria Steinem, Wonder Woman, superpowers. Uh, I think we have to do a sus Gloria Steinem, <laughs> just run through. Like, she's How at the Gloria forest Steinem dump. Gloria Steinem saved of... Wonder Woman. That's the first oh my God. thing that comes up. <laughs> <laughs>
how she got like a strictly gay academic like fired from doing his pro-abortion storyline <laughs> aka saved wonder woman really i guess back Can you then tell you me about why you decided to mount the campaign to restore wonder woman's superpowers we lobbied dc comics publicly at putting wonder woman on the cover of ms magazine and reprinting some of her golden age stories so girls plus women younger than i and joan edgar also a founder of ms who grew up on wonder woman could see what they were missing so we reprinted her golden age stories about her being like, you know, a bondage, like a dominatrix who yeah. was like a U.S. like OSS agent or whatever. And they were <laughs> like, really. Yeah. Talk about I feel like with, with the dig deep into it, don't want to, you know, paint with too broad a brush. But I feel like maybe Wonder Woman performed like a psyop role for like little girls in the 50s and the 40s and 50s that like Flash Gordon or whatever played for or like i don't know all the cowboy um, idols like played for all the little boy boomer artists that would go on to be like completely obsessed with it like this yeah. idea of like we grew up on like wonder woman we grew up on batman we grew up on buck rogers whatever huh. yeah and then they just like never grew out of it this is an interesting quote what do you think of william moulton larson's contention that seeing women in a dominant way sexual or otherwise would teach boys and men to respect powerful women um, I don't think that's an accurate representation of like what he said. I think that he associated women with submission, but so that submission could be good. And like a lot of the time, Wonder Woman gets like tied up too in those early comics. Like, yeah, she does have like she can be in a femdom role, but she can also be in a fem sub role. And like, eh, whatever. This is like bizarre. Hey. This is like a weird <laughs> like historical revisionist situation. This is like a Betsy Ross situation where they've just kind of like glossed over completely. Thievery, etc. Yeah, the problematic shit. Huh, this is interesting. I guess Wonder Woman was going to open an abortion clinic, possibly. <laughs> Yo, bring, bring it back. Bring <laughs> it back. Do it. Finish the arc. Um, oh, my God. I wonder. I wonder if... The, no, they probably won't. I, I doubt they won't. But, I mean, we're on the opposite side of history. I guess Wonder Woman was kind of ahead of the curve a little bit in 1972 to be doing that. So, I don't know. It was now Wonder Woman, yeah, like, pro-life, um, like, uh, all right. I mean, I'm just, I'm just, uh, I'm a bit intrigued here. Yeah. I wrote her out of the mindless SNS pickle she'd gotten in somehow when Fritz Lieber's new hen farred in the gray mouser. And I got her back home where I could get her started on my six issue story arc. And I plotted out in terms of six relevant villains. One, department store owner. Two, supermarket chain versus a woman who represented a group really exploited by contemporary women's food cooperative. College advisor suggesting women take home and stay away from the sciences. Oh, sorry, take home ec and stay away from the sciences. Whoa. A woman's health clinic where mammograms and abortions are available for women who request them, which the women with Wonder Woman succeeded in establishing. For this some is reason, his plan. Steinem was being shown the DC offices, and so they showed her the new Wonder Woman. All she saw was that the old woman, Wonder Woman was gone, and indeed had been gone for more than two years. She certainly wasn't told why. She was a good deal more famous than I was, and she had a magazine of her own, Ms. Magazine. Wiki says she was offended. My suspicion that she was simply surprised and nostalgic. Though relevant comics had got them a front-page story in the Sunday Times magazine, the CEOs who were showing her through certainly didn't explain that. If they put her Wonder Woman back in what kids on the street had been calling for years, her blue bikini and the American flag falsies, and had all her magic powers back, it would make no sense that she was joining with a bunch of women on the Lower East Side to fight for what was essentially a women's health clinic. Insane. <laughs> 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 and she, like, demanded a stop to this and is now being portrayed as, like, the savior of Wonder Woman because of it. 
what? So she was like, put Wonder Woman back in the all American dominatrix yeah, costume wearing, like, and send her out to like fight the Cold War. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like I'm not saying that this is like a good cultural force, but it seems a bit better. She's wearing a still somewhat sexualized, but you know, a bit more dignified kind of like leotard outfit. Yeah, get Wonder Woman back in the Playboy Club. I yeah, guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Mm, caught again, Gloria. What is going on here? What is wow, the, like says, two years after he says so maybe here's a connection he says uh, if anyone ever I do wonder if anyone ever explained to Steinem that a chance remark she made in the DC office was used basically to bring one of the most interesting movements in American commercial comics to an end and keep all mention of things like health clinics food co-ops etc out of commercial comics so he actually says this became part of a larger trend where there was moving away from any kind of social issues in all comics he attaches it to so maybe you know, it wasn't just about this one storyline, but it was about keeping the comics to, uh, in a certain lane where they would be most useful as like mythical, like fucking Joseph Campbell propaganda to like brainwash children to like love being like superhero soldiers for the empire or something like that. Maybe I'm just wow. spitballing, mm-hmm. but oh, no. yeah, getting actually getting uh, maybe these characters to like mature a little bit and get involved in. It sounds like, I mean, it's a very different direction than like Alan Moore, but it sounds almost like he's going in a little more of like, a hey, we're going to deconstruct the traditional kind of tropes of like a superhero comic. Yeah, and that she and was like a community organizing feminist in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. Is definitely least like, that's novel. And you know, also he says that no one was paying attention to the comic and no one was buying it. And that was part of the reason. So I guess it must have been just before the TV show came out and there was like a big resurgence. But maybe that TV show wouldn't have been possible if Wonder Woman was just like a a women's health advocate in the Lower East Side, (laughs) like opening abortion clinics and not hadn't been put back in the costume. And, you know, the course had not been corrected. Then she couldn't go on to become, you know, this big TV icon. Hmm. Mm, interesting. Yeah. She's got to wear that, like, yeah, sexual bikini, and she can't. Yeah, I'm looking at a page from it right now. It's just Wonder Woman, like, in this nice, like, sort of typical 70s white outfit, like, hanging out with all these women at the Lower East Side Women's Lib Society. <laughs> like, they, I mean, I know. mean, it's almost ridiculous that in the 70s, like, Wonder Woman wouldn't get into feminism. Like, she comes from an all-female no, island. She like, she's the ultimate. Zionism. Uh, <laughs> the only thing that's important her is Zionism. I used to think the world could yeah. be saved <laughs> yeah i used to think you could save the world but now i know you must only save one country <laughs> yeah okay
Scotch Arena on September 16th. They ask, have you ever heard of Alan Dulles having a private plane that was forced down in Soviet airspace prior to the downing of F. Gary Powers and his U-2? The idea being that Dulles offered the, the Soviets a U-2 spy plane to save his own ass. Apparently, Dulles double-crossed them by having the more advanced technology removed from the plane. I think I heard Michael S. Judge talk about this on Death Corner, but I don't remember the episode number. I thought I would have come across it in the devil's chessboard, but there was no mention. Mm. Okay, so uh, it, this sounded, there's a lot of intrigue around the U2 spy crash over the years. Um, mm-hmm. I never watched the super, I'm sure, like full of lies, limited hangout <laughs> movie, Bridge of Spies by Spielberg and starring Tim Hanks. But I have a feeling that, <laughs> I don't know what intrigues it gets into, but I have a feeling it doesn't like tell the whole story. Um, of course, I think maybe this has come up before with us in talking about JFK and Lee Harvey Oswald, because there was always speculation that for one, that when he defected to the Soviet Union a little while before this spy crash, um, he had been working at like a top secret radar installation, I think in Okinawa. Mm-hmm. And he may have, acquired some kind of classified information that some people speculated allowed the Soviets to track and shoot down the U-2. And also people have speculated that like if Oswald was a kind of double agent, like fake defector, that maybe his handlers secretly wanted the U-2 to get shot down because it did happen at a very inconvenient time. It happened like days before a huge peace summit uh, I think it was a four-power peace summit uh, in Paris that you know Eisenhower and Khrushchev were attending, and the shooting down of the plane caused a lot of bad blood on both sides. That basically led to like the collapse of the uh, conference and the escalation of tensions. So some people think that like oh you know Oswald was sort of used to feed them this info to like scuttle basically any attempt uh, by like late Eisenhower to. Uh, tamp down the Cold War because Mm -hmm. Dulles wanted to ramp it up. So that's one kind of theory. Although, I guess if I had to poke one hole in that, it would be that Lee Harvey Oswald, um, I think, defected like quite a while before the U-2 was shot down. I think, what what did it get shot down? In, um, yeah, May 1st, 1960. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, Eisenhower was still president. Well, I think... Uh, did Oswald October 1959 okay so seven months after that's actually a kind of reasonable time frame if somebody brought you information about seven months later you decide to sort of use it and Mm -hmm. shoot down a U2 um so maybe but then this is I've never heard this angle before that Alan Dulles was like actually on an airplane that was forced down in Soviet airspace prior to the Gary Powers and that he like offered them the U2 spy secrets to save his own ass. I was, I was not able to find any source that like directly said that. However, I found something that is pretty closely related. So I, I wonder maybe Scotch arena was maybe misremembering a certain aspect of this, or maybe they did hear it somewhere that Dulles himself was flying, but I don't know if that's true. It sounds a little less likely. Like, why would Alan Dulles be, like, secretly flying around in a private plane, like, in the uh-huh. Soviet airspace? That seems very 
risky, almost like he'd want yeah. to get caught. And honestly, right. also, I, I sense, yeah. yeah, I feel like there's also like there are plenty of very understand like there are plenty of tactical reasons why Alan Dulles would want the U2 to get shot down besides having to save his own ass because he got like caught by the Soviets or something, right? Yeah. Like he he could have all kind of schemes up his sleeve that he wants us to get shot down, and and maybe I mean maybe the aspect of it of uh, hey it gets shot down but it doesn't have all the advanced technology on that specific flight. So the Soviets think they get everything, but actually they're kind of getting psyoped, et cetera. Like, there are all Mm -hmm. kinds of games he could have been playing. But to uh, give maybe the most direct answer to this question, I think I I found what this may be referring to in a Washington Post article from 1982, I presume when they still occasionally did, like, real journalism sometimes. (laughs) By, uh, by Murray Martyr, and this is called Testimony on Spy Planes Reopens Shrouded Chapter of Cold War. So this is about the U-2 incident, it is about Alan Dulles, and it is about a secret plane being uh, forced down in Soviet airspace okay. before the U-2 crisis. But it's a, it's like a little, it, Alan Dulles isn't on the plane, but um, I'll just read some of it here because it actually is pretty interesting. And uh, I'd never, I think I'd never heard this before. So, a heavily shrouded chapter of Cold War history has been reopened with new insights and controversy arising from recently declassified testimony of CIA Chief Alan Dulles on spy plane operations against the Soviet Union in the 50s and early, early 60s. Members of the U.S. intelligence community from the Dulles era were dismayed a week ago by news accounts about an allegedly undisclosed CIA spy plane shot down over the Soviet Union before the sensational U-2 overflight of Francis Gary Powers on May 1st, 1960. Dulles's testimony was given behind closed doors to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on May 31st, 1960, during the international uproar about the U-2 high-altitude reconnaissance jet plane and the collapse of the Paris Summit Conference in mid-May that year when Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev vented his outrage over the flight by the captured American pilot. News reports last week, based on Dulles's testimony, said he disclosed that the United States lost, quote, eight or nine Central Intelligence Agency operatives on an earlier spy plane forced down in the Soviet Union. State Department officials, after consulting with the CIA, told questioners <laughs> that the reports were incorrect and that Dulles evidently was referring to the widely publicized loss of a U.S. Air Force plane and crew over the Turkish-Soviet border in 1958. Many colleagues of Dulles similarly said he only was citing a known incident in 1958, a second one in which a plane was forced down across that frontier. There were two problems with the explanations, however. The two groups were talking about different episodes and neither fully meshed with Dulles's testimony. No one willing to speak about the affair can reconcile all the discrepancies. However, from information now available, it appears that in the tense U-2 inquiry, Dulles deliberately scrambled his testimony to shield the identity of the then-super-secret National Security Agency or unwittingly mixed up the mm. two incidents. Possibly he did both. Yeah, people <laughs> no, forget the NSA, w- it right? Long, it was Oops, yeah. Mistake. Yeah, I think uh, definitely shielding the identity. Yeah, people forget the NSA was like no such agency back in, this, in the Cold War right. days. Like they didn't even talk about it like it, it didn't exist kind of thing. And as one associate recalled, a Dulles technique in maintaining an aura of certainty in his testimony was to, quote, give quick answers to deflect questions and never appear hesitant or in doubt. 
One encounter involved an Air Force C-118 on a CIA courier mission with nine men aboard, three formally assigned to the CIA, and forced down about 100 miles inside Soviet Armenia in June 1958. Um, All those people were released after 10 days of questioning. In September 1958, a second deadlier incident occurred in the same region, an Air Force C-130 with 17 military personnel aboard on assignment to the National Security Agency and packed with electronic eavesdropping gear for gathering intelligence was shot down and crashed in Armenia. Six bodies were returned by the Soviet Union, but 11 were never recovered. In 1962, after stormy disputes at the highest levels of the U.S. and Soviet governments, the 11 missing were officially presumed dead, although efforts to recover the bodies were still being made in 1972. That episode is recounted in a revealing book on the NSA, The Puzzle Palace by James Banford. I've heard of this book. It it reprints an extraordinary transcript of monitored conversations by Soviet fighter pilots during the attack on the C-130, The transcript made public in 1959 by Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, Allen's brother, in an unusual effort to force the Kremlin to account for the missing crew members. The U.S. never officially admitted that either plane was on anything but a normal Air Force mission, but the State Department virtually did that last week, perhaps inadvertently, when it connected the incident with Dulles' testimony. Before and during the deep penetration of Soviet territory by high-flying U-2 planes beginning in 1956, U.S. recon planes on ELINT, electronic intelligence missions, known as ferrets, operated around the vast periphery of the USSR to pick up emissions of radar, ground communications, and microwave signals. Sometimes, accidentally or deliberately, they penetrated Soviet territory during what were called risky fox and hounds forays to set off Soviet air defense radar, and in these instances, American aircraft were often fired upon. Alan Dulles, in his 1960 testimony, evidently overlapped both incidents. He said, quote, You may recall there have been several instances of planes that have strayed over Soviet territory which have been shot down. You recall the two incidents in Armenia and the Caucasus a few years ago, and there have been instances off the tip of Japan and some near Alaska. He went on to say, In one case, we are still endeavoring to get back, you know. They haven't told us what happened to, I think, eight or nine of the crew of one of the planes that came down in the area of Caucasus. This was a civilian plane, Dulles said. It was manned by employees of the Central Intelligence Agency, not by military personnel. They were in civilian clothes. It was an entirely civilian intelligence operation, and I was prepared to take the responsibility and document that responsibility. Cool. Dulles' associates at the time included Richard Helms, later CIA director who was present in the U-2 hearings to clear portions of the closed-door testimony for public use. Alan Dulles died in 1969. Helms said last week that he has, quote, no recollection at all about that brief testimony, but that it is, quote, inconceivable that there has been any third such incident involving loss of CIA lives withheld from the public or agency associates. Similar comments came from other former Dulles colleagues, including Richard M. Bissell Jr., who planned the U-2 program, Jack Morey, then Chief of Soviet Operations, Lawrence Houston, then CIA General Counsel, Ray S. Klein, former Deputy Director of CIA for Intelligence, he's come up before, and Walter Forsheimer, noted as a historian on intelligence who last worked for the CIA in 1981. Alan Dulles, these sources said, must have been referring to what they describe as the C-118 courier flight forced down with nine Air Force men aboard in 1958. That flight would have had special memories for Dulles. Oh, okay, this might be... Okay, 
Interesting, right here. Okay. That flight would have had special memories for Dulles, for that aircraft was used regularly by Dulles or his deputy, General C.P. Cabell, and that flight might have produced a sensational captive for the Soviets. Cabell had disembarked from it in Wiesbaden, West Germany. Interesting. Okay, so the deputy CIA director, General Cabell, had been on that flight, but had gotten off on, like, I guess a connection stop, and then it continued on and got shot Mm. down. I see. And so maybe that is the germ of the rumor, because Dulles flew on that plane all the time, that maybe it got forced down secretly with him on it. Yeah. Okay, so I guess that flight went on to a CIA base in Cyprus, then to a U-2 base in Adana, Turkey, and was headed east toward Tehran when it crossed into Soviet airspace and was attacked by Soviet MiGs. No plush transport plane of that type, a modified DC-6, CIA sources said, would have deliberately ventured into Soviet territory. Five men bailed out immediately, with two reported burned as they escaped by parachute. They and the four who rode the plane to the ground were captured, and the Soviets evidently believed they had inadvertently crossed the border, CIA sources said, for they were, quote, only lightly interrogated, and after ten days of detention, were released over the Soviet-Iranian border. Huh. Okay. And then this, I think, maybe is where Scotch Arena did actually read about this for the first time, or maybe Death Corner was citing this book. So... They write a far more dramatic and indignantly denied account about the incident has been given by L. Fletcher Prouty, a controversial writer on CIA history and for years a thorn in the agency's side. Prouty, a lieutenant colonel at the Pentagon in 1958, describes himself then as a liaison officer with the CIA and said he participated in the investigation of what he calls, quote, a staggering goof that caused consternation in the Eisenhower administration. Prouty's version is in his 1973 book, The Secret Team, The CIA and Its Allies in Control of the United States and the World, and its subsequent (laughs) magazine articles. Yeah, good book. We've cited it before. Okay, so he said, aboard the downed C-118, he charges, there was, quote, a highly classified briefcase containing extensive information about CIA operations, plus, quote, equipment for the then super secret U-2 spy plane program. That information, Prouty claims, enabled the Soviets to shoot down Powers U-2 in 1960. Prouty's claims were scoffed at last week by Helms, Bissell, Forsheimer, and others. Helms, who left the CIA as director in 1973, said, I simply don't believe that Prouty is accurate. There was no substance to the charge. Bissell said Prouty was not authorized for access to U-2 information and said, quote, I don't see what information there could have been aboard that aircraft that could have helped the Russians to bring down Powers U-2. Forsheimer has written that the Prouty book, despite the author's considerable background and knowledge, was studded with faulty recollections and unwarranted conclusions. The CIA has declined official comment about any of these latest variations on this still-clouded chapter of U.S.-Soviet spy plane history. (laughs) So there you go. I mean, uh, the Washington Post kind of going hard in 1982. I mean... I've always said that about reading like old New York Times or like yeah, WAPO shit in the eighties. Good like journalism in the New York Times, like occasionally, but yeah, or, like, not so much. Yeah, like not so much so today, past, but like, yeah. but like in the seventies, eighties, and even sometimes in the nineties, you would have uh, somebody go on a beat like this and just I don't know, just like do what, what I would change? expect. The basic mole bug, right? They have a weak. They have a weak king. 
I think they do kind of have a Soulsburger, uh, probably do a Wheat King. They're also partially owned by Carlos Slim. That's mm-hmm. kind of a thing. And a bunch of Saudis. Washington Post is owned by Bezos. Do the math. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, uh, what's her name? Catherine Graham or whatever. She was oh, always kind of like, bit, yeah, um, Ben Bradley and Catherine Graham are always kind of like CIA. Yeah, um, but they did let uh, they, they let some steam out every now and then. And I mean, okay, so that is interesting that actually there was this plane that was tightly connected to both uh, Dulles and the deputy director and that maybe maybe it wasn't that Dulles um, or Cavill was on it, but that there was top secret information that allowed them to like get a read on the U2. That's possible, I suppose. That would sort of preclude the need for like Lee Harvey Oswald to tell him about it, but he could have been there for other purposes, you know. I think, yeah. or, or also just to like launder a resume of like the crazy communist who killed the president, mm. you know, or something like that. But yeah, I don't know. And I mean, do do we think that it said that this plane would not be on a deliberate surveillance mission in Soviet airspace because it was like a DC-6 basically that was a big mm-hmm. clunky cargo plane right you know not one that could like slip in and out very easily Mm. so did they i guess uh, proudy himself calls it a staggering goof which makes it sound like it was they fucked up it seems i don't know much about navigating um an air travel in like 1958 i don't know what kind of uh, instruments they're working with and stuff but i would Mm -hmm. feel like you would want to avoid like if you're a top secret government airplane that's just transporting people, you would want to avoid flying into Soviet airspace, but maybe that's easier said than done. Maybe it is possible to fuck up. And then, you know, they they did get forced down. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. They could have been... Yeah, I, I don't know. It seems odd that they would just wander into Soviet airspace. Uh, I mean, know, well, I going back to shit. yeah, yeah going like, back to the idea that uh, Dulles maybe was trying to like psyop the Soviets. Maybe that was done on purpose, and maybe yeah. maybe and they even used the plane. All these like captured drones and shit that happen now, like by Iran and things like that. Um, You're right, actually. I mean, what if they send up like a weird defective drone that has some kind of fucked up like aspect to it that is incorrect and they shoot it down and they think haha we got it now but then you realize i mean they did that bill casey did that a lot with basically um i think i think we touched on it in our uh contra five victory episode about deliberately actually i don't know if they cop to it in that book but other people have cop to it of basically designing like faulty software and shit like that or like faulty electronic technology and then mm-hmm. letting it get like stolen by the soviets and then right. but then there's like some kind of glitch or bug in it that makes it all fuck up and you know they think they've gotten this like access to this great technology so i think there was always a little bit of uh yeah that, that game could have been being played i i certainly yeah. think he has kind of means motive and opportunity i'm not quite buying bissell's excuse that like he didn't have access to youtube information okay bro <laughs> um, you know, yeah. I, it's, it bears mentioning, by the way, that Richard Bissell Jr. is the son of Richard Bissell Sr., who was on the managing board of directors of the Western Union Telegraph Company in 1903. So, you know, this guy, I don't know, he's got a lot of secrets. And I think he was a huge planner of the Bay of Pigs as well. So, like, I don't know, Richard Helms, Bissell, not exactly the most trustworthy 
individuals. And in fact, I think they're all like Yale, like skull and bones motherfuckers. So I think that, you know, if anybody was plotting to undermine like peace talks between Eisenhower and Khrushchev to like continue the cold war for like very nefarious, <laughs> uh, satanic reasons. It would have been literally this gang of guys like yeah, Dulles, Bissell, Helms and Prouty could have found out about it all kinds of ways. I mean, he found out about a lot of shit in retrospect and it is interesting. They say like he has considerable background and knowledge. So I guess you can't really earn. I mean, maybe you could say is our Fletcher Prouty, like kind of a limited hangout or something like that. But that would almost require, I think, a whole deep dive. I mean, at the end of the day, he does appear to be one of like the biggest whistleblowers to come out of the national security state. And like they didn't kill him, which is weird. They all said he was like a nut and he was crazy or and he was wrong and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But like it doesn't seem like any they ever maybe he had like some kind of insurance policy or something where they couldn't go after him, but yeah. it is weird. I don't mm-hmm. know, but that's, so yeah, I think it is in the Fletcher Prouty's The Secret Team is where you will find that story about the weird, you know, Alan Dulles plane that went down in the Soviet Union. Can't say for sure, but look into that if uh, you want to you wanna dig more. <laughs> okay. Just looking at some of these books that were written like around, you know, about this, this period, like a Red Moon Rising, uh, which is like a oh, you mean uh, R. Fletcher Prouty? Um, no, he d- he didn't write that. Uh, it was by Matthew Brzezinski, actually. I don't know if there's any relation. Is it is it B R Z Y Z? Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, Brzezinski. Um, relative? I don't know if he's a relative. Uh, definitely same name. It's not it's, like the most common Polish name, I don't think. Um, I, this is de- he's definitely re- there's no fucking way yes, he's, he's the not related of the big news <laughs> there you go i love that from the upper room of pentecost to azusa street in los angeles god has used prayer movements throughout history to change the world over 15 years ago a group of students gathered for a prayer vigil in chichester england and the prayers they started haven't stopped Wait, oh, wait, no, that's a different book called Red Moon Rising by Pete Gregg and Dave Roberts. What does that have to do with? <laughs> uh, no. Red Moon Rising, How 24-7 Prayer is Awakening a Generation. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was thinking about Red Moon Rising. Um, like uh, yeah, the, Sputnik. And, yeah, the hidden rivalries at night of the space age. It's kind of about. Yeah, yeah, that would be how, kind yeah. of, hmm, interesting. Okay. 24-7 prayer does seem like it would be pretty effective if you truly prayed 24-7. Yeah. Do they take shifts or what? I don't right. know. They're Again, on some Pentecostal really, shit. Yeah, not really irrelevant. Yeah. Um, oh, I didn't realize that Big New Brzezinski's nephew wrote a book about the space race. He did. Into the hidden rivalries that ignited the space age. Hmm. Well, grain of salt, but interesting. Yeah, Art Fletcher Prouty, I want to say I read years ago, there's something that like shit-coded him, I think, for people. I think maybe he was published in one of those weird like Liberty Lobby. I think Liberty Lobby maybe like published him and they're like a weird kind of like Christo-fascist, like kind of anti-Semitic sort of Uh, thing that people say are like they're Holocaust deniers or something. But I always felt, I never, everything I've ever read from Art Fletcher Prouty could be wrong, but I never read anything that's like, oh, he's like a Nazi or something like that. Yeah, who killed Martin Luther King? Yeah, he made documentaries. Oh, yeah, the men who he appears in the men who killed Kennedy, who killed Martin Luther King, the Jim Garrison tapes. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, he. I mean, he's like the Donald Sutherland character in Oliver Stone's JFK. Basically, is based directly right. on him, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. X. Oh, that's right. Okay, yeah, he was a featured speaker at the 1990 convention at the Liberty Lobby. He was also named to the advisory board for the lobby's Populist Action Committee. He also sold the reprint rights for the secret team to the Noontide Press. The publishing arm for the Institute for oh, Historical damn. Review, a uh, Holocaust yeah. denial. But okay, he, he denied having known of the racist and anti-Semitic associations of the lobby, noted that he also spoke at a ceremony at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, and assured Oliver Stone, quote, that he was neither a racist nor an anti-Semite, but merely a writer in need of a platform. In a response to an article about Prouty and Esquire, which he labeled a character assassination, Stone lamented Prouty's association with the Liberty Lobby, but questioned its relevance to Prouty's reliability as a source. In an obituary in The Guardian, Michael Carlson wrote that although Prouty himself never espoused such anti-Semitic beliefs, the connection enabled critics to dismiss his later writings. So yeah, he I I, it sounds like he like got shit-coded. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Thing. Like they yeah. called in that's like all the Nazis, like go like recruit him. Yeah. Yeah. That's sort of. Yeah. You got to watch out for that. <laughs> yeah, you definitely do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, whether it's like me, I I wonder. Oh no, actually, yeah. This comes from actually an article. I was just gonna bring him up, but oh wait, no, no. I'm sorry. This is from Political Research Associates, but it's called Right Woo's Left. Populist Party, LaRoucheite, and other neo-fascist overtures to progressives and why they must be rejected that somebody wrote in 1999. So I was going to say, like, hmm, I wonder if the LaRoucheites, like, went after Prouty and tried to get him kind of on their side. Mm -hmm. And, you know, which is another thing that would kind of, like, shitcoat you in a lot of them. In a lot of circles, and of course, they had a lot of like weird intelligence connections, and I'm sure the Liberty Lobby and Mm -hmm. God we could dig into them one day. Like I'm sure they're absolute sus, like John Bircher, like cowboy CAA fucking connections to the Liberty lobby. Like without a doubt. Um, Sounds like a very sus. Wow. This is, Oh, this is actually yeah, 75 page like report that also talks about, uh, the rightest influences on the Christic Institute theories. Mm. Remember them? Yeah. I was just thinking about that when you mentioned LaRouche and how they kind of like sunk that yeah um, danny sheehan the you know recipient of the god phone call yes right big ufo guy now mm-hmm. and uh the right-wing roots of sheehan's secret team theory barbara honiger the october surprise and larushites <laughs> so her too from contra one barbara honiger oh yeah reverend james bevel remember him didn't he go i might be getting this uh, i don't want to say remember there was the guy who went uh, with the LaRoucheites to like expose the Franklin scandal and then like in the 2000s he got arrested for like maybe it was James Bevel yeah no no it was James Luther Bevel I mean he was like an anti-war activist civil rights activist uh, I think he was at Selma he was in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and I think he went with like the LaRoucheites and like John DeCamp in the 80s to do all this publicity to like expose the Franklin scandal mm. Which I remember we, we clocked in a Contra 3. is like, huh, interesting. Like, why are the LaRoucheites... The, but the, also, like, they were part of a coalition that included, like, weird expat, like, Banderite, like, Ukrainian Orthodox people. It Damn, was it was a weird Bevel mix. Luther was arrested in 2007 for incest. Yeah. Yeah, by, uh, by, uh, yeah his daughter was accused, um, and he was sentenced to 15 years in prison. And then he died, but he died of pancreatic cancer in 2008. 
So uh, weird. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And proud. So I, of course they would go after Proudy, just like they jumped on the Franklin scandal to like, you know, I guess maybe shitcoat it. That's kind of the impression I'm getting these days is that John yeah. DeCamp, LaRouge, they could talk about satanic sicko elites all the time, but they ended up, I mean, it ended up getting all memory hold and discredited. So mm-hmm. they didn't really have a good, uh, they didn't end yes. up succeeding it's at their ostensible mission. A, exactly. a carefully constructed hoax. Yes. Yeah. Fucking bullshit. Yeah. So I don't know. A lot of interesting stuff uh, in that question to dive into. In September 16th, thoughts on the upsurge of documented humanoid encounters in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, well, I feel like wow. my take on this is that, like, the word documented 
is doing a lot of work in a way. <laughs> well, because it's like documented as humanoid encounters, like as quote unquote humanoid encounters, because I feel like humanoid encounters have been uh, happening at a reasonably uh, steady rate, or at least a, a significant enough rate, like for pretty much as long as human memory goes back. I don't really we know if there was like an bit. upsurge in actual incidents or if there was an upsurge in interest in them and a... Or, an, the, the, or uh, yeah. yeah, or like a, uh, you know, the, an upsurge in the technology that you could ostensibly use to like photograph, like Bigfoot, you know? Like yeah. you could photograph and video things for the first time. Yeah, but and I, like a and framework for talking about them as like humanoids, you know, like the John Keel type stuff. You know, I think it was people who sort of had that approach to things and that sort of interest in framing things in this way is like, oh, we're encountering humanoids and that kind of certain discourse that was new. Not really the f phenomenon of encountering humanoids that weren't human per se. I think it was just more uh, kind of a cultural thing, uh, most of all. And I think, you know, there's a, like, parapolitical sauce angle to that where, like, you know, I think that there's a relationship between that changing discourse and the uh, intelligence interest in that type of phenomenon that was happening, like, during... Oh, we've the, definitely documented the that. War. Yeah. Tom so. Slick, like all these people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Tom Slick, for Ivan Bigfoot, Sanderson, the Yeti. Um, yep. mm -hmm. even uh, Mulholland, who was like sent out to investigate the goblins. Uh, that right. was in the 50s, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He was. And uh, I mean, sending the SS to like find the Yeti up in like the Himalayas. Yeah. And the list goes kind of on and on. I am noticing here because when he said humanoid encounters, I mean, I didn't realize that was like a commonly used term so much, but I guess it sort of is because I mean it's such a broad term, right? Mm -hmm. Like that could that could be a ghost, that could be a Bigfoot, it could be an alien, it could be yeah. some kind of monster, or something like that. But uh, I guess there are these books by Albert S. Rosales, uh, and they're like they're broken up into like five year chunks. I just yeah. typed it in on Amazon and it popped up. Humanoid encounters, nineteen sixty five, nineteen sixty nine. The others amongst us. <laughs> You yeah. know, and uh, I guess so. I guess there is. I think there's a, there's a subreddit called Humanoid Encounters, mm. and yeah. I mean, do you know if there's something? Is it really just like a pan category of like Sasquatch, aliens, cryptids, dogmen, ghosts, jinn? Yeah, I think that. I mean, uh, well, jinn is also like a pan category, as we know well on Swimmel Jihad. But um, yeah, I think that it is like a a sort of sweeping category that I think that was like what was relatively new in the 60s was that you had like sort of Fortean type investigators like John Keel who were trying to systemize these things in a new way. And I think he used the term humanoids. In fact, didn't he write something called humanoids? He wrote Trojan Horses Maybe. of a Breakaway Civilization. Hmm. Yeah, Men in Black, Mothman, and Mysterious Humanoids. This yeah. is actually a great category on the subreddit. Normally wouldn't endorse <laughs> a, a subreddit of any kind, but uh -huh. it's really just like, it is kind of like an SJ Pantheon of like the more <laughs> fringy kind of shit we talk about. It's like, let's see, uh, unknown humanoids, possibly Bigfoot, stock deer in Canadian forests, Octopus humanoid experience results in a lifetime of communication. Pale, mouthless, black-eyed kid encountered in North Wales woods. 
the Kazakhstan UFO crash, mysterious disappearance of an alien who lived with the shepherd, long-haired deer man observed in Pendleton, <laughs> Oregon field. I, deer man, that's new. Cloud people man. took my coat. Cloud, Cloud people? people took my coat. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, is it just R slash humanoids? Um, uh, no, R R slash humanoid encounters. Oh, I see. Um, yeah. I think I Possible mermaid at Karachi, Pakistan Aquarium in the 1960s. Uh, the first post at the top of the page is on <laughs> Whitley Strieber's communion. So that's yeah. kind of telling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Dover demon. Could it have been an alien? The MUFON regional director is talking to somebody. Noctivigant. I guess Noctivigant. is like a podcast. Right. Noctivigant is the one that is talking about Willie Streeper. They have the MUFON guy on. Um, I never heard of this podcast, but well, interesting. You know. This has 274,000 members. So The Kazakhstan UFO crash, the mysterious disappearance of an alien who lived with a shepherd. No. Yeah. Why did he lose his alien friend? Um, I mean, you know what? The, the cryptid subreddit only has 54,000. Wow. This has 274. This has more than cryptozoology, has more than skinwalkers. It has more than Bigfoot. People want Bigfoot's only 112. I should have posted here about the Bigfoot NSA note. This might be the most uh, SJ-pilled. I like that uh, humanoid encounters rules. No fiction. No inappropriate or uncivilized. Must contain humanoid encounter. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Word. Okay, I think we can do that. Satanic, um, quote unquote, goat man chases alarmed Kapul Kodruli, uh, Romania villager. No, this is Why? really quite wi- wide ranging. I'm kind of yes. uh, impressed by this. Insectoid alien reveals true form to UFO researcher. Oh yeah, um, we got to get back to mantis aliens one day. So, yeah, uh, are mantis aliens different from greys really, or are they just like yeah? Yeah, they are. Yeah, right, yeah. no, there's a distinct, like, yeah. there's a whole, yeah, insectoids. Yeah, they're like <laughs> like psychic praying mantis aliens are a thing that All right. some people talk about. Fair enough. Well, okay, yeah. So, I mean, what I think the upsurge of documented humanoid encounters in the 60s and 70s, I mean, I think it just tracks with the popularity of UFOs, the popularity of Bigfoot, the cultures that like rose up around them maybe the implication there by young haller is like were there more humanoids running around encountering people in the 60s and 70s for some reason or were we paying more attention to them now i mean and and thinking about them in a new kind of way there is a possibility that the i think that it's largely the latter but there's i do feel like maybe uh there's more dogmen afoot now than there have been. The, the, the rituals. You can't discount all you the discount fucking Lovecraftian rituals. rituals. You can't discount the rituals. And I do feel that, you know, you're hearing more dogman reports. You know, you're seeing dogmen making incursions into, uh, you know, closer <laughs> to civilization. So I don't know. Yeah, maybe uh, it's, it's possible that there, you know, there's a similar, or maybe it's part of the same, uh, it's, it's in continuity with that in, uh, earlier increase in, in humanoid encounters uh so i, I do think yeah. it is possible that there was an increase but i think that largely it you know, i mean shit rael right like yeah. riles in the 70s the, the the elohim they're basically humanoids yeah it's funny that nowadays like it's all about this is probably tom DeLong's fault but like it's all about like the tick and yeah. stuff like it's all about how like ufos are like cool nazi hot rods that are secret machines and they're totally dope and we don't talk so much nobody talks so much like the leslie keens all these other people they never talk about like who's flying these weird aircraft no they don't and in fact like we've talked about many times with leslie erasure she yeah she kind of like 
uh, Barry's the lead a little bitter is like not a hundred percent upfront about like the extent of her ideas about the phenomenon. You know, I mm-hmm. think that people, you know, if you watch the X Files, there are like some type, of, but that's like kind of the uh, archetypal image of the UFO phenomenon or how it works, or you know, maybe Independence Day or something like that. I, I mean, obviously, that's a bit of like a disaster movie type thing, and but there's basically there's one race of aliens that look a certain way they're here for you know they they're here for a certain reason you know mm-hmm. something like that you know like uh the galactic federation stuff is more like woo woo 2022 QAnon pleiadian walk-in yeah. type though it's know. been percolating for many years oh yeah no it, it is a throwback to like earlier adamski like 70s type stuff but I mean, you throw in the nine, which like literally the bankroller of MUFON, Lawrence Rockefeller, was like obsessed with and participated in where they think they're talking to like, I don't know, some Supreme Council of like galactic aliens. That, yeah. You but know, nowadays and all that shit. from Tom DeLong type people, I feel like the image that's being pushed is like there's a particular like there's like a certain type of visitor, you know, like. There's the visitors. They're like all one thing, you know. I mean, maybe like on the fringes of it, you kind of have to look a little bit deeper than I think the average person to get to the Leslie Keen like consciousness, like NDE type of mm-hmm. discourse around it, where generally it's kind of like they're grays, you know, something like that. Like, uh, yeah, exactly. They're from a purple planet. They're light beings. They're here to help us, you know. Like, I don't think even like, Stephen ex- Greer says that there's like warring factions or more than one. They're like all the same. No, he's he's very on the tip of like they're all like Good. kind of enlightened light beings yeah. that are kind of the same thing, and they're all here to help us. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I mean, no, he's actually world, if you can take it, it's <laughs> he um, is he is huge on the idea that kind of like the, all that stuff about aliens fighting and there's good ones and bad ones is like all a psyop by like the powers that be to convince us that they're evil but even though tom DeLong is like the person who he would point to like as the biggest one of the biggest purveyors i mean i think that he considers him to have been sort of psyoped himself but he's now at this point like a big uh promoter of the larger psyop of warlike aliens from Stephen Greer's perspective. I mean, I think all the ET stuff is a psyop, honestly, but he doesn't necessarily seem to promote the idea that there are more than one type of alien or ET. Like it seems no. like, yeah, they're a security threat possibly, but there's one of them. I mean, I guess his stance is like, we don't know, we don't know, but that's kind of yeah, like he's actually very he's very circumspect about talking about the alien part of it. That's what I mean. He's all about the secret machines, but he's not about, like, really who built them, except for being, like, guess what? Like, the materials on this UFO could not have come from our world. Like, mic drop. Like, end of story. But, like, they leave it hanging like that. They don't, like, go into it at all. He kind of acts like, I don't know. He just doesn't really... It's almost conspicuous how... Because he gasses you up on all this UFO shit to the point where I feel like it's a natural... The next question is, okay, so, like, who are these motherfuckers? And, like, are they dangerous? Can we trust them? And he doesn't really get into answering that. Though he definitely leans a little bit more on, like, this cool, like, national security state thing of, like, 
um, the Pentagon is actually enlightened and like they're just yeah. trying to, they need to use me to like slowly acclimate society. It's almost like Tom DeLonge almost acts like the way he talks about like the secret space program Pentagon people is the way that Stephen Greer talks about the ETs is like they, they love us yeah. and they want us to evolve, but they know we're not ready. So they're going right. to slowly declassify everything. <laughs> like Chris Mellon is going to slowly reveal the method. Right. And then we will all have world peace when like the globalist like security council decides that everyone can have like zero point energy. Like, it's so fucking weird and like it's so fucking San Diego. I can't even take it. Like yes. it's just highway to the danger zone all day. <laughs> he just loves like military hardware and like driving hot rods and being kind of a Nazi. Um anyways, uh yeah, yeah. so I don't know. But I, I don't yeah, know. I mean I feel like with that it's like they never could truly disclose because it wouldn't be like cool. But there's no sustainability for it to actually like explore like what is in the crap. I mean, I do feel like the UFO stuff, there's almost like a memory holing incident where they don't have like a framework for like, oh, why were they saucers in the past? Why are they still sometimes saucers? Why, like, you know, then what's the tic-tac? You know, there are different types of aircraft, but like not really that have like entirely different forms. I feel like they kind of like are skirting around the the whole uh, like framing of like secret machines. Like maybe they're not machines at all. Like maybe yeah, they're yeah. some I mean, other kind of phenomenon. Like that's the on top. Yeah, um, true. That is an on top. Um, that they have uh, to be machines at all. Yeah. But yeah, and, like in that type yeah. of thing, like the whole phenomenon of like all these different, like this wide range of different humanoids being countered that have like totally different characteristics and like the sort of absurdity element. All that stuff is being very like st- you know steamed out. When I don't think that those stories are necessarily less credible. They might be less, like, realistic from the point of view of, like, you know, I don't know, like, what seems plausible, like, in a movie or some shit. Talking, like, you know, the ultimate sort of psyop, predictive programming type thing. But I don't well, think yeah, they or something that could be just proved. because they involve, like, they seem, I don't know, cheesy or whatever or, like, weird. Or, like, you like, give it to an engineer and they could, like, explain how it works or something like that. Like, once you get into, well, but, like, the spectral aircraft territory, yeah, you know. But it's not like anyone can explain it anyway, you know? True. Like, it's not, like, it's, I don't know why it's treated as being more plausible that these are ETs than that it's something entirely different. I understand why it would be treated as more plausible that they're, like, you know, Chinese aircraft at the five physics, even though that does seem to be a stretch. But uh, I understand when people's, like, epistemology, like, has certain borders they don't want to explore beyond, like, a certain point. Like, that makes a bit more sense to me, but I don't understand why the idea that there's, like, these sort of ETs, you know, like, it could be, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like it could be anything at that point, you know. But yeah, for we some don't, reason, that is considered to be, like, epistemically acceptable. Safer. Or plausible, yeah, to, to yeah, consider Yeah, Leslie like, Keen can kind they're gin, of... They're gin, they're gin. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, well... In terms of, you know, keeping certain things secret, maybe that segues perfectly into the next question. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're talking about secret machines here, right? Let's see. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, cabbage all right. Man. Oh, am I supposed mm-hmm. to be reading this one? I, I think, think it's, so. uh, I'm on, I'm the odd number, I think. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, um, right. Okay. So Cabbage Man asks on September 16th, any hard evidence of tech being suppressed <laughs> by the U.S. Uh, Patent and Trademark Office? Yeah, I mean, I think there's tons of hard evidence. I wasn't even sure if, like, I was understanding this question properly because I feel like there is, I mean, maybe they're thinking of some other kind of technology, but it's definitely the case that, like, technology is for sure 
not only suppressed, but like kept secret. Like there's various like secret mm-hmm. government technologies that people aren't allowed to know about. And even like historically speaking, like TV, radio, uh, radar, the nuclear bomb, penicillin, they weren't like commercialized until decades after they were invented. To quote uh, Schickelman, in commercializing patents, his, his book. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, according no, to for sure. Yeah. For sure. Well, we all know about patents. Gustavus Myers taught us a thing or two about patents, and I think in some other episodes. I think even the Ouija board had like a weird kind of patent dispute over it. Yeah. And I think maybe it was talking about Jose Delgado, the MK Ultra scientist who like put electrodes in bulls. Mm-hmm. Didn't he have a bunch of weird patents that like people, people always look up and they're like, Electrode advice to like control human behavior. <laughs> I don't know. It's something like that. Yeah, I mean, there's who all kinds knows of what weird other, shit. Like secrecy orders are out there where like you won't be able to see what is patented. Um, yeah, they can absolutely classify shit. Yeah, like for they sure. do fact, it all they the do time. Quite wantonly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not like it's just all open source. You found an article here: the U.S. government's secret inventions from 2018 on Slate. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. The U.S. government's secret inventions. Yeah, and there's like thousands of secret patents that they have yeah is that there are 5,000 as of 2017 there are 5,784 patents that you can't see that the u.s government's cache of inventions under secrecy orders we don't know what they're for but once secret patents recently made public have included a laser tracking system a warhead production method an anti-radar jamming apparatus and a stronger net Invention secrecy in the U.S. dates back to the 1930s, but it really took off in the 40s when the development of nuclear weapons was shrouded in classification, became official policy in 1952 with the Invention Secrecy Act, which allows USPTO to keep patents deemed detrimental to the national security on lockdown, like maybe UFOs. (laughs) Under the act, USPTO's commissioner of patents became empowered to flag patent applications, even those developed by private citizens, like, say, Bruce De Palma, Brian De Palma's brother, who created a zero energy drive and then died mysteriously, for review by government defense agencies, which could request that certain inventions be kept secret. Patents covered by such secrecy orders may be restricted from export, made available only to defense agencies, or even classified. Patent holders can appeal secrecy orders, but the power to rescind those orders remains in the hands of the agencies that made the requests. While there may be a chance those agencies will reconsider, the statistics are not promising. According to figures from the Federation of American Scientists, from 2013 to 2017, an average of 25 old secrecy orders were rescinded each year, while 117 new secrecy orders were imposed annually. With so many inventions deemed secret, so few eventually publicized, and the entire process itself obfuscated in classifications, it's no wonder that critics have questioned whether the current invention secrecy regime is really working properly. I bet it's working properly for some people. Yeah. Um, and then of course, like, you know, even in the, in the private domain, quote unquote, private domain, uh, there's all sorts of cases of people like, you know, choosing to like not commercialize their patents, not license their patents, not use them basically just to prevent technologies from basically existing. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. uh, And I brought up there, like, I mean, I don't know if we ever really got to the bottom of it, but you know, I think we talked about, I think think in our Mars episode, going to Mars in a bucket uh episode about Bruce De Palma, filmmaker, Brian De Palma's brother. Yeah. Like the, and it was like the end drive or something like like I'm forgetting the name of it right now, but he had written all these papers about it and he insisted that it worked. It was like a zero point energy generator. (laughs) 
And there was, a, but then we we found like an Indian scientist who like claimed to build a prototype of one of these things and was like rolling it out. But then if you try to look like further, you'd think this would be a bigger story. And then yeah. there's kind of like no Western coverage of it. It's very mm-hmm. murky. It's very, and then yeah, Bruce De Palma like dies in New Zealand in the nineties and it's just all very, I forget who he, God, who did he work for? Did he work for Kodak or something like that? I think he worked for a lot of like big companies developing like very cutting edge. He's apparently like a very talented engineer and De Palma was a science, a gifted science child as well. So I don't know, but it's like that, that's an example of if, you know, not saying it is real, but if it worked as advertised, you could see yourself in a dangerous situation. Actually, that reminds me, do you, did you see that meme going around? I'm assuming it's true mm-hmm. of one of the victims of the like Buffalo 4chan Nazi supermarket shooting from, you know, a month or two ago. Mm-hmm. He, this guy, I don't think so. Oh. Yeah. One of the, one of the guys who was killed was kind of known for creating a car engine that ran on water. Uh. And like the meme going around was like, Oh, what a coincidence. Like <laughs> this guy like invent and he was like posting on I think there were some local news reporters and stuff that kind of uh you know profiled him as like local inventor, like creates like <laughs> an engine that doesn't need oil and like a week later some like PTK fucking 4chan Nazi like walks in and blows him away. <laughs> um not saying there's any connection there, but it's just a little there's a little Dracularity yeah, there. There's been um, a lot of yes, definitely. I mean maybe there's been a lot of like water based cars invented uh in in my in my life, I feel like, but maybe. Ha- well, and then how long do the inventors live? Um, I don't know. It's true. I don't, the, I don't know. The other thing that jumped out at me is there was like a similar story uh, or a kind of similar type of story of a guy, I think in Texas, who is a former, he was like a former army ranger. This is a black guy who was like an entrepreneur. Um, actually, both of them are black, which is interesting in like a Gustavus Myers way of like, just like everything else in this country, I feel like if you're a black inventor, like, you know, we already said they don't like inventors historically, True. right? Like they always yeah. try to like kill and, yeah, even you know, if even if you're like, like a white guy. In other respects, if you're an inventor, if you create anything of value rather than just doing usury and fraud, then uh, you have to you, be crushed. You will suffer. Yeah. You will suffer for it. So this guy, thank God, is alive for now. And maybe, like, he had to get military training to, like, defend himself. I don't know. But, no, he created this, actually, this fascinating device that generates, like, clean drinking water out of water, out of, like, air vapor. So it, like, can literally... And he he's, like, donated... I think he brought a bunch of them down to Puerto Rico after the, the hurricane, you know, knocked out their water infrastructure a few years ago. He also installed a bunch of them in Flint, Michigan, because our government apparently cannot like provide real drinking water to that city still yeah. uh, years later. So he Our brought these like, to drink Flint water. He, oh yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> yeah. So Ugh. this guy, I'll give him credit. Like he brought up these, uh, and like, didn't chart. I did it, I guess on his own dime, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, as, as sort of a charity thing and set these like huge, you know, uh, water condenser machines up in neighborhoods so that people could come by and just fill it up. And, it's kind of a, ama- I mean, uh, I was thinking, you know, as like climate change goes on and, you know, like water is being commodified and like that could become a really sinister commodity. Didn't like the CEO of Nestle be like, water's like the oil of the 21st century. Uh, like, cool. Right. Yeah. Fucking Nazis. 
And so here comes this guy who's like, hey, like I developed this relatively inexpensive device that just like makes water out of the air that's totally clean. And like mm-hmm. you don't even need complicated infrastructure. Somebody went and like blew up like his water cans in no. like Flint, Michigan. Yeah, somebody went and like disabled them and like like I forget what they did, like set them on fire or something like that. And so they were all offline for a while, and it's like, oh, nobody knows who did it, you know. But like, what the fuck? Yeah, see, you got to watch out if you're an inventor of something that really is good. Watch out. I guess you have to develop it for DARPA, or else like they'll come kill you for DARPA and let them just let it sit on the shelf unused. uh, Yep. Or yeah, or you will be crushed. Well, the technologies like that—that's what I'm thinking—is like, okay, there's probably secret technologies that are very advanced and blah, 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 that they want to keep to, like, use for themselves to have a competitive advantage, whatever. But then I wonder about using this veil of secrecy, how many technologies that would up and would, would cause economic disruption, but not the type of economic destruction that, disruption that they can profit from, like something mm-hmm. that makes a scarce commodity highly available and affordable to everybody. You would think that would be a triumph of human progress right yeah if any way you know maybe to, to help transcend the profit motive right mm-hmm. like that would be maybe one step closer to transcending it would be okay like you, there's no point and there's actually no way to commodify water anymore because it's so cheap and so abundant or you know oil doesn't have to be this geopolitical nightmare thing that pollutes the environment we could just put water in our cars i bet some people don't want that that's just a hunch Definitely. but i think Definitely the people that people make money off all that. that shit now, you think Nestle wants that? You if think, you know, Chevron a car wants it? That can run water or like uh, something like that to produce significant energy to run water. I mean, yeah, definitely it's not desired. <laughs> no, it has to be like a convoluted electric car thing that is like, you know, uh, stuffed full of like coltan and like lithium from like the Congo using like slave labor and then uses like energy that's actually piped from like natural gas plants like into these charging stations so that like upper middle class tech liberals can feel like they're saving the earth while it burns yeah that's allowed that's allowed that's cool that's based um i mean but yeah not water cars steam kind of function in that way like how steam engines yeah how come no one has thought about just making a steam car we might have to go into oh we might have to go into sus automobiles one day because i think that was there were all kinds of cars in the very early 20th century mm-hmm. and the idea of like an oil-based combustion engine was by no means like the only thing people had invented, I think. I think there were water-based like steam-powered cars and things like that. Maybe they're not as like cool and hot rodden yeah. and secret with a K as a, like a Corvette or whatever the fuck, <laughs> but like... Okay. Yeah, you know, right. like, mm-hmm. but like, hey, if it got people around and it uses like it an abundant, cheap uh, source for its energy, uh, maybe that would have been better. But then Henry Ford and Standard Oil and all their buddies wouldn't have been able to, you know, like dominate a huge sector of the economy and the world and stuff in the 20th True. century. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. That uh, Speaking of memes that maybe you've seen, that reminds me. Of, did you see that thing that was like uh, the future of transportation or whatever, and it was like a UFO that was like somehow like balanced in these two tiny little legs like running on a track like uh, through like a highway? Did you see that? It's like this. I think it's I like did. It's like a CGI thing, and it's like so stupid. 
Like it was basically. It was the like, most like not uh, intuitive invention was, I think like it was I'd ever literally seen. like learning on a train track, but it couldn't possibly be a train. It had to be UFO shaped, and like <laughs> it had to be like running on the highway, like along with a bunch of cars, and like weaving around them to like decongest the highway, like. <sighs> I just want, I want to replace all these fucking people that have bright ideas about, like, revolutionizing transportation with just, like, Stalin. I don't know. Like, I don't know. Like, I'm so, like, over this shit. Like, these people, these, like, urban planning trots are, like, insane. people, like, are so, like, yeah, like, Elon Musk and, like, all these fools who are, like, just so, like, ideologically opposed to, like, the very notion of a train. Like, one of the most provenly efficient forms of transportation i don't i don't want to stereotype but kind of a traitor to his people exactly right? yeah what the hell <laughs> like how dare what you the fu- <laughs> yeah as as a billionaire on the spectrum that is like what to to not yeah. use your power to create a high-speed like a 21st century high-speed train system and instead yeah. make like death trap tunnels for teslas underneath las vegas Ugh, exactly you hate to hell? see it yeah, hate to see it. it's true. I didn't never even thought about it that way, but yeah, it's it's especially egregious in in light of that. None of them, like Peter Thiel, he's on the spectrum. He he hates trains. Wow, this is yeah. Like, I mean, I'm sure he'd love to make them run on time, if you know what I mean. But like, <laughs> what is going on? There's like a like a dark Aspie movement that's like opposed to everything that Aspies are supposed to stand for. It really like is like trains. the the dark the, um, the dark Aspie <laughs> enlightenment. Um, even like Mencius Moldbug in that late that article where he advocates that uh, we need to accept our rightful ruler King Charles the Third as our <laughs> sovereign again. Okay. Even at the end, you know, the great symbol for some reason of this like this return with a V to tradition is like I don't know a procession of like Royal Marine hovercrafts like buzzing down the Potomac River. So even he's like he's obsessed with like hovercraft. Like you know, none of them can get down with trains. Which is, it's interesting because we already made so many, like, connections like Elon Musk and, like, Jay Gould and, like, the corruption of, like, the railroad industry and mm-hmm. stuff. And, like, how the internet is actually so trainish. Yes, true. In, in so many ways. It, like, yeah, it's a it network system. to a track that you must follow. Yeah, sure. It yeah. does. So it does, it has the, sure. mm-hmm, yeah, it has the, the illusion of freedom. Yeah. It's, it's not much a big more dangerous truck. It's a series advertised. of tubes, as they say. Um. <laughs> so yeah it's like it's weird that they're they're so resistant to like this networked infrastructure of on tracks like i don't know what it is about it that that bothers them so much that they just can't i think it's the publicness of it that pisses them off it has to be yeah i guess yeah. so it, yeah i yeah i can't imagine i guess yeah like you could i mean you could have like a very hierarchical a uh, train car, you know, where you have like the the lower classes, like in the back, and the the fancy cars for the rich people, you know, private train True. cars. So I d- it's not like inherently proletarian, but maybe right. just the idea of being on the same train, like within the same walls, not even yeah, within the same fly, walls. Like they don't even fly that, like just linked, these people. Linked, you're right. They don't even fly first class. They fly in their own jets. So, like, the yeah. idea of they having... They make contact, like, once again. Uh, <laughs> okay, yeah. The other thing I saw lately, I don't know if this is, like, some weird CGI shit or if this is, like, actually about to be a thing, but I saw some, like, weird, like, hip, like, TikTok video advertisement for, like, a gigantic mega plane, almost like a cruise ship, 
but it's like a even bigger than a 747 and it's got like a bunch of engines on it and again it has like a ufo kind of on its back that is actually like a 360 degree like lounge you know that like people can hang out in and it said it's designed to like stay in the air for a year straight and like it this is going to be like the cool like luxury cruise experience of like the future is going to be going up and like staying on this like perpetually flying plane that has like a big ufo type like lounge on top of it it didn't look aerodynamic or efficient at all which made me think is this some kind of like weird concept that they're trying to push and why would it have to like stay up in the air for a year i guess you could come and refuel it but that feels dangerous like we've never really done that i guess with like zeppelins but you know what i mean like i don't yeah it's fucking weird like people are coming up with bizarre ideas now about you know what to do meanwhile the things <laughs> that could actually change you know the modes of production or make you know uh, modern conveniences or whatever more accessible to everybody no we're just coming up with like frankenstein like gmo food on like bill gates's mega farm and like weird ufo cars that run down a highway on legs and dumb bullshit you know yeah i'm looking up I this thing now i guess it was a cgi video it shows how the ai piloted sky cruise plans to remain airborne for months at a time yeah it's gonna be uh, the, nuclear the ai piloted sky cruise god yeah, that 5,000 air hotel passengers. Of Why course it has to be flown by AI. Anyway, like, well, I don't, I guess it's like a breathtaking, but it gets kind of boring being up in the sky, like for, like after a while, depending on how high up you are. I don't know. Yeah, Maybe wouldn't be I guess if you up. get to fly like really high up, it's like you're almost like on the clouds, like you're almost in space or whatever. Kind and of. I don't know, it doesn't sound as appealing to me as like a normal cruise by sea when you like actually stop places. Yeah, but I guess not. Yeah. No, people just want to fucking live in a literal bubble in the air for months. I guess it's um, nuclear powered, which is how yes. it would be like, you know, invite. Oh, so great. There's like a nuclear power plant, like just flying, yeah, like basically a gigantic yeah, nuclear like a submarine situation. Again. Yeah, right. Like they're just going to nosedive um, and like start the apocalypse <laughs> like one day. <laughs> <laughs> the AI is a God. Talk about a fucking a. The AI is gonna pilot it. It's gonna be basically a huge nuclear missile that an AI is just like floating above the air, like nonstop yeah. to like fucking blackmail us all into like accepting it as our master or something. <laughs> like what the fuck? Get, like, like hijacked. Like it's gonna get like hacked by someone and just yeah like, used as yeah blackmail on the entire this world. is 911 times a thousand yeah like this is, this is waiting this is to happen what, what did sk bane talk about it like phoenix, phoenix day or whatever black like, christmas this black, is christmas. black christmas yeah right yeah. right right yeah <laughs> <laughs> this is black christmas it's like, this is talk yeah. about like a 30-year conspiracy like they're planning now like all right what a, what ritual like you know world monument are we gonna like ritualistically crash this into yeah to, like start the apocalypse i'm like, sure when they build it it'll be even like more sus than it looks in the cgi it's gonna have like some kind of like rubbing it in our faces element yes. to it. Like, <laughs> it's gonna have like baphomet on it or something. like angel of death yeah exactly <laughs> like the morning star cruise line or yeah something. Like, yes, exactly. yeah <laughs> um i am death uh, destroyer of worlds yeah okay. <laughs> <laughs> stop inventing sus shit yeah um, just okay. like uh, why 
release the patents, stop giving us this bullshit to cover up for it. Yeah. This is 